and welcome to the podcast. Tonight we're going to talk about my divorce from Beta. I so here's the thing. When I first got in to fandom, I posted on fanfiction.net because I didn't know any better, as one does. And there were some typos, common misusage, etc. There were pointed comments telling me over and over and over again that I needed a beta. And so I bought into it. And my first beta was a fucking nightmare, to be perfectly honest. Um, looking back on it, I can even find mistakes she put into my work. But the nightmare part was when she shared my rough draft. Or not my rough draft, it was my third draft. But she shared my unpublished work with her friends while she was betaing it. Betaing it. Anyways. Anyways. And then I met Lady Holder in a Yahoo group and then met her again on Wraithbait and had an excellent experience. I've, I've really had really great beta experiences since then. And it's not about the beta people who have been involved in my process. It's about the beta process itself. And this idea that somehow, some way... I need to strive for perfection when I'm offering other adult humans free entertainment. And so, I've been thinking about it since my birthday. I mean, Carrie, you mean you're going to put out 120,000 words and there's going to be a typo in it? How dare you? Right? I just can't be perfect even with otherwise, you. right? But it wouldn't. I'm going to... I'm going to have to divorce you. I from our, I, I can't be friends <laughs> with somebody who's that callous about their writing. It's just... <laughs> but see, here's the thing. Bef- like, at the end, at the end... Oh, I'm going to open up that fucking document. Hold on, hold on. Um, only Time, that's what she's talking about, which I recently put out. It's the third part in um, Heart and Soul. I am very proud of it. Uh, I won't do any spoilers if you guys haven't read it and you want to read it. I'm very proud of it, though. Um... And I didn't do beta on it. I didn't. And you did something. You did something slightly worse. I mean, you dealt grammarly. Grammarly. I did. I did do grammarly. Okay, I'm gonna open up the final document on only time. Hold I'm just. On. I'm just messing. Grammarly. I'm just while she's while she's doing that. Grammarly can be its own form of torture. Um, and sometimes, not usually on a really long work, but sometimes I will just choose to skip grammarly as well as beta, just because. It is a special form of hell. Um, now, I will say that sometimes I will read somebody's work and I can tell when they've let Grammarly put a typo in for them. Because Grammarly will put typos in. It, they're, it's not a human being. Um, and it is evaluating based upon whatever algorithms it has. Um, and it, it will make mistakes. And I, there's actually sometimes, you know, we, we were talking about it over in Just Right today about... Grammarly suggested a change to somebody and then it suggested they take that change out on the next pass through which I would never do two pass throughs of Grammarly. I thought that's level right? of masochism. But the <laughs> only just... thing worse about Grammarly is sometimes it doesn't pay attention to you when you say no. Right? Like, throw that mistake right back at your face. I'm like, bitch, I said no. We're not happy. Listen to my no. <laughs> this, 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 is no. A, this is not okay. this is not a negotiation. This is a no. I spent 72 hours, 72.7 hours on only time. It is 122,000 words. 122,492 words. You will get really particular about it. Um, 72 hours 
on the writing and the editing that I did. I started Only Time November 1st of last year. I posted Only Time October 31st of this year. So nearly a whole year without beta. That's just me, my first, second draft, third draft process, editing, like, my, my, my read-through editing and Grammarly. 72 hours. It would have taken another 20, 10 hours-ish of somebody else's time, plus another 10 hours-ish of my time on beta. Now, tell me how that is a reasonable burden for something I'm not going to get paid for. Because it, it isn't. Now, this isn't about money. If I want to make money, I'd be writing professionally. And I, it, might be, it may be arrogant to say this, but I could make money writing professionally. I don't doubt it. I've done it. It was soul-sucking and it almost killed me, but I can do it. It isn't about money. It's about time. If I give only time another 15, 20 hours of my life, that's 15 or 20 hours I'm not writing on something new, something interesting. By the time I got to the end of the Grammarly check on only time, I was done. Yes, I could have tortured myself so it could have a few less typos than it currently has, but it still wouldn't have come out perfect because there are human beings involved in that process, right? And worse, you know, if you if you added a digital element, which I did, you know, it, nothing is perfect. Nothing is ever going to be perfect because even machines can't tell me how to put my commas in correctly. So, so Julie's saying that beta for beta would probably be twenty to twenty-five hours, not ten. You're 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 probably for right. You're probably right. Well, I don't, I mean, I can't speak to how anybody else betas, but I don't beta at the same speed that I read at. Um, so, yeah. if I, if my, assuming I, I'm, even if my reading speed is, let's say, I read a little slightly faster than normal, but I don't read at the speed that, I think like you and Lady Holden both read very fast, but I probably read 300 and 300, between 300 and 400 words a minute, which is close to double average. Um, but I, I beta. 500, but that's iffy. Yeah, but it, it's beta. My beta reading speed is probably closer to a hundred words a minute, if not slower at times, because there are sometimes whole sentences where I will sit and stare at them for two or three minutes. Well, and it's if you're reading it, my work, that's fair, because sometimes I'll be like, "What the fuck did I mean by that?" Yeah, I mean, it is. It is a case of sometimes the sentence is very complex, and sometimes, and sometimes it's a case of do, and and part of that is also like for me as a beta it's like it's like the editor mindset versus a beta mindset is different and so mm -hmm. sometimes i make i have to make a call am i going to cr critique this sentence as if i was ed an editor or as a beta reader because it's a different it's a different approach and i don't mean specifically about reading your work but in i would say 100 words a minute on beta is would be quick so uh Anybody who's getting through beta very fast is I I would not trust how how well they're reading how how comprehensively they're reading because you have to read slower otherwise you don't notice the things that somebody like me is looking for like as missing words because when you're reading quickly you supply those missing words you don't even notice it yeah because that, that's um, how our brains work that yeah that's that's how you end up missing words in your own work because your brain is supplying them i didn't do the math but you're yeah you're right i mean i mean i mean in the past i would have given i mean i would have said okay can i have this back in two months if i'd have sent lady holder 122k yeah 
And it's also or a matter Chris of like or whoever affied Betty in the past or Jilly. I wouldn't have I, I wouldn't have expected a week, two weeks, or even a month turnaround on one hundred and twenty two k because that would be and fucking ridiculous. And it's not just sit down and read it when you beta something that's long. It's not just sit down and like read a hundred words a minute like you like for leisure reading like you might read for five or six hours i don't usually beta for more than an hour an hour and a half at a time i mean and that's me it's because what happens is your ability to comprehend the errors diminishes the longer you go so when i start I, when i've noticed that i've missed mistakes i have to make myself stop and for me that threshold is somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes um on on works that are very mistake heavy uh, I, re I, 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 this is actually editing. It wasn't baiting, but it had a ton of errors. Um, and, and I think the issue with person who was, um, English is a second language. And so there was a lot of like transposition of words, words not in the right mm -hmm. order. My ability to, to effectively edit that work was 15 minutes before I would hit brain saturation and I would need to stop for a couple hours and then come back to it. So it makes sense. Yeah. So it, it can be, it, right? Right, very quickly. And so the, the that 25-hour investment could be uh, over the course of like two hours a day for 10 days, but you may not be able to do it every day, so it could literally take two or three weeks. And so it's not, I mean, you're right, it is, it's not about like a beta's, and then there are people who are very would be very willing to put that kind of commitment in to baiting 100,000 words, 200,000 words, 300,000 words. But that's not even the the issue. Is like you said, is there comes a point at which you ask, is it worth your investment? Is it worth their investment? And then you have to incorporate their feedback, and you have to think about it. And I don't know. I because mean, it, I'm. I've come to the point where I feel like it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my creative energy, um, because I, I'd rather move on to the next project and get started. Um. <gasps> I get a lot more out of the alpha process uh, than I do out of the beta process. When I, because when I, that's how I'm having a problem. And I sit and talk it out or an issue with somebody and I really mm -hmm. creatively gel. Now, I think there are some authors who could learn a lot from the beta process, but I think very few authors take the opportunity to learn a lot, to learn from the beta process. But you also have to have a beta that can actually Start help down. you. Yeah, if you don't, then... you. You know, so I mean, that's the case of like, what beta have you found? Like you talked about beta that introduces errors into your work, um, you know, and, and it's, and in there, there's, there's all kinds of things about the whole process, you know, it, and there's this funny thing. There's this weird emotional thing about it. It's like, it can take a long time to find a beta you trust. You go through this whole cycle of this emotional thing of letting somebody in and you, you have, you talked about having the person that introduced typos into your work and who betrayed, betrayed your trust and shared your work with somebody else. And you go through that whole process and you find somebody you trust with your work who does a good job. And you like, you, maybe you hit that Holy grail situation of where, and then you're like, and then you start to go, okay, I'm in the situation that a lot of authors want to be in. You've got a beta you trust. You've got one that gives you good feedback. They are willing to accept your boundaries and they don't cross them and all that kind of jazz. You trust them with your work, everything. And then you realize that it's not worth the investment. And then what do you do? <laughs> I mean, you're kind of stuck with it, right? Because, I mean, and honestly, I have really great beta relationships. I do. Um, I have great alpha relationships. I just 
don't want to beta anymore. I want... Okay, I turned 48 recently. And it's not the, the big birthday that's coming up, obviously. I'm going to turn 50 in a couple of years. And it crosses my mind that the beta process doesn't bring me joy. Are you going to Marie Kondo your writing process? <laughs> I am. I have. <laughs> because I really enjoy Alpha. I do. I mean, I really enjoy the exchange of ideas and the discussion of, t of, of themes and characterization. I really like it. I hate Beta. And it isn't about the people. It's about me and how... I get to this point in the process where I don't even want to open up and look at my own work. And I've always found a great deal of comfort in my own work. With the exception of that one book that we don't talk about. Um, well, I wouldn't talk about it anyway in, in this particular medium. But I, I find comfort in my own work. I, and when I am having a very difficult day, I'll go read my own stuff so I don't get a surprise I can't handle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll pick up a work in progress and read it and think, did I write that? <laughs> It's in my writing folder, so I guess I did, but I don't remember it. <laughs> and then Sometimes get pissed I... off, and it ends somewhere. Well, what happens next, Heifer? I gotta, I gotta write it. <laughs> oh, there's that. <laughs> to find out what happens next, because I didn't finish the... it. This is going to be terrible. I sometimes read a work in progress at the end of it. I go, you know, that was, I just really enjoyed that. And I just got to read something that nobody else on the earth got to read. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's read that but me. <laughs> I mean, because it's like, it's my safe place. It's my happy place. I do it because it makes me happy. I I invest myself in the storytelling. Um, the technical aspects are kind of rubbing the shine off. And especially when you get to the end of the process, and, I, and whether it's professional or, or not, whether it's original fiction or um, fan fiction, Nothing is perfect. Even the Bible has typos. And so when you got when you have that in the back of your head saying nothing is ever going to be perfect. Um, yes, I want to create a product that is readable, no matter the audience that is going to appear in front of. But there's not a lot of incentive for me to make sure I'm placing all my par my um, fucking commas correctly in my fan fiction. Well, if I, I think may be so blunt. I think when it comes to the to editing, um, and uh, editing and beta, editing whether it, and be, uh, beta beta falls into the into the the far the outside the outside of this, I think it's a, a very much an an example of the eighty twenty principle. You know, you do eighty in twenty percent of the effort gets you eighty percent of the results, and then eighty percent of the effort gets you that remaining twenty. And beta falls into that 80% effort that's only getting you 20% of the results. So, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, you know, and so when people do that first and second, usually I do a, a big major edit and then I do a final, you know, if I'm going to do without beta, I do, my process would be, you know, I do a big major edit and then Grammarly, and then usually I'll do a final read-through, although depending upon the length of the work, sometimes I don't do a full final read-through. Um, and usually somewhere in there, sometimes before Grammarly, there's another read-through. It just depends upon how long it's been since I've, you know, had hands on every scene, especially if I have to do a continuity read, and sometimes that happens. Continuity reads are a giant pain in the ass if you've got a long work. Um, but anyway, um, 
so I'll, I'll do all that and and then that but when that so if we if we consider that to be the 20 percent effort when you start tacking on trying to perfect and you do beta the beta process and incorporating beta and if you have more than one beta and you have to send that to another beta and then once you incorporate beta feedback you usually have to do another read-through and do another edit yourself and then that act of that last edit and that act of perfecting that takes all takes more time than, than probably five or six times the length of the editing process up to that point well in only time i had a rough draft in a second and a third draft at the end of the third draft i did a spell check and a word grammar check set it aside about a week later, I gave it a read. I did a read through, made some changes, added a couple of scenes, did another spell check. Then a week after that, I took it into Grammarly. You did Grammarly um, twice? Are you high? No, I did a word edit. Oh, oh, the word grammar checker. Okay, yeah. And okay. then I did the Grammarly word, like the Grammarly checker. Um, so by the time I finished Only Time, I had read it probably upwards of 20 times. The whole thing all the way through. Um, because I have, there's some OCD issues there and I, I am having memory issues and there's some continuity. I wanted to make sure I got right and maybe I didn't get all of it right, but I tried super hard. And here's the thing, if I try super hard and at the end I'm happy with what I've put out and I'm happy with the product, the, the story that I've told, I don't think anybody who's reading it for free gets to complain. Yeah. I mean, there's, um... There's, I don't know where the culture around Uni Debata came from. I don't know how that started. It certainly started before I joined fandom, and I joined fandom in the late 90s. Um, it was there when I came into fandom, Uni Debata, Who's Your Beta Reader. I had one, my one long project. Um, there's probably upwards, not on the whole project. They didn't all work on the whole project, but there's probably upwards of 10 beta credits on the project because... Um, I had to rotate beta through for uh, on occasionally, you know. So I, I, as I moved into to, to other parts of the project, we'd get a different beta. But I, I would say through the big part of the big body of it, the the longest piece, um, I probably had five or six betas on that one piece because I was told I had to. You know, th this was not like I desired this. Um, I was told this is the way that it was. Is that you had to make it? You had to make it perfect. You know. And, um, I mean, There's I even had... There's an entitlement had... there, right? There's an entitlement. Yeah. Um, and it, I... It's reader entitlement, which we've, we've beaten down to dust um, many times, that there is this expectation that we that they want something perfect. And if it's not perfect, they're going to complain. And how dare you be upset about their complaints? I mean, because there their are... two hours of reading is equal to my 72 hours of work. Right. Um, well, there are there are readers who think that their one comment is equal to, you know, that, that it puts you on the same. I mean, but outside, but I don't know. There's there's something else there that I can't quite. I've never quite been able to wrap my head around about this whole. You need. I think that there was this idea that fan fiction was a training ground. And I think that for some people, this there's this like it's a training ground sandbox. Get a beta, sort of like they're sort of like a junior editor. We're all kind of playing in this space and training up, and uh, it, it'll help grow you as a writer. Well, not every writer needs that, but even for the writers who are who are who are growing as writers, 
it shouldn't be imposed on them that they have to do it. I think that they can do it if they want to, but if they just want to have fun, they shouldn't have to treat this as a classroom. Moreover, a lot of times the betas, um, you have to be really careful with when you're picking out a beta, trusting them with your work, and because they will teach you terrible, terrible fucking habits. Oh yeah, they'll tell you, and the thing is, they also there there are things. It's not even just sometimes the wrong things you'll get told by betas. Is betas will often try to take over. Not often. I, I use the word often as wrong. They, there, there, there are betas. There is a mentality of, and it's only happened to me a couple times, with betas who try too hard to put themselves into the work. That they think your dialogue would sound better if it was written this way. Or they think that, that you should use, um, you know, I, I've had betas like suggest whole cloth, whole paragraphs that I should insert into stories. And it's like, now I have as a beta suggested to somebody how to rephrase a sentence that was awkwardly phrased that's not the same thing as telling someone here is a paragraph of dialogue that i think it'd be cool if your your character would use um that is super intrusive <laughs> if, if someone did that to me i would cuss them out <laughs> Right, it's like, and that is you are. I didn't just, and I had one person not just suggest it. It's like they put a comment in and suggested they actually typed it into the document, like like it was a correction. Their their dialogue they wanted me to use. It was like, what the fuck is going on here? And um, and it it, it's like moments like that. It's like, oh my god, holy crap. Um. Well, there's a difference so, between asking, um, hey, I don't understand what you've said here. Can you rephrase it? Is there a word missing? But I've never even had a professional editor try to insert their own narrative into my work. That's no, and as a level shit. And as a professional editor, you're kind of like told not to do that is because it's you're really you're like you're and it's the same thing as like if 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 a sentence was awkwardly phrased. And that's actually one of the things like when I was being trained how to edit is like if there's a problem the author has with a sentence you can suggest a fix for them if you want to if you know if they're having a or, or if they're struggling and to come up with a way to handle it you could say here are some options or if you want me to suggest a fix I can do that you can you know there, there are different ways to approach but it's all like here are suggestions for like a rephrasing that would make it clearer but you don't ever put it in the document right it's because that there's something very intrusive about someone typing over your words with their words. You know, you put it in a comment and you say, you know, this seems unclear. I think if you rephrased it like this, it might be clearer. Or you could say this way or this way or this way. And I actually, one person, I think I gave them like six different options. Because I said, I'm not sure what you mean. But I think it's either this or this. And here are the three different ways you could say it in either scenario, right? Um because sometimes, sometimes what happens is somebody says this sentence, a beta or an editor says this isn't clear, and your brain freezes up and you go, I don't know how to fix it. And I've had betas come back to me and say that and say, I just, I'm frozen, I don't know what to do, how to fix. I don't know how to fix, like my brain just stalled out. And so, and that's one of the things that we do in ed, professional editing is we'll suggest a change in the comments, like, but it's not writing. It's just like here, here I'm just refer. I'm using your words in different order, or I am taking this very long sentence you wrote and making it four sentences. <laughs> right. 
Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, people just kind of run on, right? And so you're like, here's how to take this very long, complex sentence and use punctuation. But phrase a little less patronizingly. Um, the other part of it is, is that all of my betas are also writers. And sometimes I feel like, you know, dropping 122K on another writer and asking for beta is, a, it's a big ask. Because you're asking them to take time that they should be writing to work on a piece of fan fiction for upwards of 20 to 25 hours, based on Jilly's math, which is much better than my math. You never, never trust my math. I well, I think you were. Story I think. That. I think you were doing it based on. I think you were. I think you were calculating it based on reading speed. And reading speed isn't a. I was. Yeah, I was thinking about reading speed um, more than I was beta speed. Um, but yeah, don't even get me started on the ages and what might have been. We just don't talk about that. We just don't talk about it. Okay, it's fine. Don't talk. Don't talk about it. Me and math, we're not friends. Um, I have um, dyscalculia. That's the that's the math version of, what's it. I forget. Dyslexia. 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 Um, anyways, uh, what was I saying? Uh, that, that you ask other writers when you drop 120K yeah, on another writer. Yeah, even though that writers don't mind, I don't feel good about it. I don't, because when it, like when you're in a professional setting and you're, you're working with an editor, that's their job. You know, that, that's what they're getting paid for. That That's what they're there for. That's their job. I remember um, having a meltdown about some mistakes I'd found in a manuscript after it had been submitted to a publisher and I was melting down on the phone with my agent and she said, and I quote, don't worry about your background, right? That's what editors are for. You tell the story. The editors will do the rest. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm going to sit over here and have some coffee. <laughs> because fundamentally she was right. Yeah. I mean, yes, once the publisher. Good, good craft is important. Yes, absolutely. Good grammar is important because you want to be able to convey your story in a way that makes sense. And I do want to tell a good story. And that part of that good story includes the ability for your reader to comprehend what the fuck you're saying. Yeah, I mean, unless the, unless the publisher knows they're going to make a ton of money on you, not you, you Kira, but you and you in general. Yeah. Um, they aren't going to want something that's riddled with problems because they aren't going to want an editor's time tied up with your basic grammar issues. So, you know, they want to, that editor to be able to move on to another project, not be, you know, putting in, you know, a, you know, a, for the a record, correction. My editor correction. did not get bent about my semicolon. <laughs> no, I, I sincerely doubt that. Um, but it did you know, get turned into two separate sentences, though. I remember it specifically in the um, proof that I got. Uh, but, but I mean, you know, I've seen I've seen publishers kick a a, a a a book back saying, you know, we like the concept, but you're going to have to work on the. This is going to have to be cleaner copy before we're going to do anything with it. So I mean, th there there is a there is a, a a place there where there is a point at which yes, gram. Editors are there to perfect, help perf perfect being the wrong, not quite an accurate word, but they're there to polish your work, not um, not teach you fundamentals. I mean, editors are not there to teach you fundamentals. That's just they're not the there truth. to teach you. Yeah, they're not there to teach. They, I mean, they will teach you some things because they're certainly it, usually editors typically know more than than most people do about um, 
grammar and punctuation and, and, and that kind of thing. And they certainly should know your publisher style guide better than you do, but they're not there to be your English instructor. So, uh, and that's not what they're paid for. They're there to polish your work. So if you don't know the fundamentals, you may not get past the acquisitions editor. That's a whole other issue, unless you are a well-known author who makes a ton of money in which case they might just go, well, yeah, we're going to have to put an editor on this for like 10 times longer than usual, but we're going to make that money back, so we don't care. But though that's the outlier because most people don't make anybody that much money anymore. Right. I mean, a bestseller these days might pull 10K. Y yeah, right. I said 10,000 words. 10,000 dollars. 10,000 US dollars is a bestseller today. Yeah, it's it's terrible. I mean, uh, it's self-publishing is just... We won't go down that that rant, but um, but the thing I've about said before the... that I don't agree with self publishing, and I don't. I think that if you're starting out and you want to make a career for yourself and you want to be taken seriously as a writer, you don't want to self publish. That being said, if you just want to put your words out there for people to read, do what you want. Yeah. If you don't want a career out of it, if you just want to put your words out there, you do you. Put it on Amazon. I mean, I can say <laughs> that I don't agree with it. I can say that I think Kindle Unlimited is, is the devil. Oh, is the it devil. doesn't mean it is the devil. It doesn't mean that I'm right. It's just that's my opinion, and I'm allowed to have it. So, you know, you can disagree and do what you want. Um, just like I can really think that you should use Oxford commas, and you can disagree and leave them out. And we will you think you're you. wrong, but you do you. I mean, the heart. thing about, I will just sit there and quietly think, I hope that you never write a legal contract. <laughs> um, I, I, I do see there is value in the beta process. I, I believe that when you have the right beta relationship, when you trust the person with your writing and they're worthy of that trust and they give you that time. Um, it is it is very valuable on a personal level, um, but I have been writing for thirty six years. I don't mm -hmm. need to have somebody hold my hand. Um, yes, I make mistakes because I'm human, um, and I am no longer willing to invest twenty, twenty five, thirty extra hours of work into a story that I'm done telling. Yeah, I mean there are. I'm kind of at the same place. I mean, Kira and I kind of have both kind of come to this place. Into, I think we both kind of sort of fizzled away from the beta, betaing up most of our works around the same time without talking about about it. Um, Although you did make me feel better about my not betaing <laughs> earlier in the week when you said what you said. <laughs> oh. Um, about, about, about only time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm like, you can I'm say like, it. I, I'm not. I mean, yeah, go ahead. If you want, I, to I'm like three quarters. I'm like three quarters of the way through it, and it's just, it's really clean. You know, it's really clean. I mean, it, nothing is typo free, but if 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 there are, if there was something that people always have, people always have have their jarring typo list. Oh, it always throws me out of the story when people mess up rain and rain. I mean, honestly, if that throws you out of 120,000 words, just stop reading on the internet because there are, there are, there are, that typo gets through professional editors. It is bizarre, yeah. but it does. It does. It's, I mean, it's part, part of the reason is because it's become so ubiquitous that people are inured to it, but that's beside yeah, because the point. there's actually three versions of the word rain. 
It just depends on what you mean. <laughs> right. It, it always cracks me up when I actually, I saw somebody mistake R-E-I-N and R-A-I-N, which is not the usual mix-up. And it just made yeah, me laugh. because R-E-I-N and R-I-G-N? Yeah. It, which, it, just made me, it just made me laugh that they wanted to rein somebody in R-A-I-N, and I went, well, that's an unusual mistake. It just didn't, but it didn't. It, it didn't throw me out of the story. It kind of paused me for a minute because it just was an unusual mix-up. But people always people talk about jarring typos, and for them, what it is is it's their pet peeve list. Right. Um, jarring typos for me are things that um, drastically alter what the author meant. Um, there was a case. Um, I won't give the exact answer, but it almost, it, it was a typo. It was a very, and it was a very, a very common typo, actually. But in the context of that sentence, it, it read like somebody was doing something very inappropriate to a child. As opposed mm-hmm. to something fairly normal. And to me, that's a jarring typo. It's like, oh my God. Because, I mean, I couldn't stop my brain from going, oh Oh, mm, no. Um, <laughs> Whoa, Nelly. <laughs> and to me, that is like, it's like, it, 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 and, and, the, and the, the problem is the visual that then came along with that and, and where my brain went was like, what the fuck? And then I had to kind of rewind it and the, and the whole like de- unspooling it in my head and realizing what they meant. And I was like, okay. And by that point, I'm so out of the story, I don't even know what's going on anymore. To me, that is a jarring typo that throws me it throws me out of the story. So people start talk about trivial, like, you know, the two alters getting mixed up throws them out of the story. Get over it. I mean, honestly. I, I mean, uh, I know the difference between alter and alter. Do I use them interchangeably? Yes, I do. <laughs> do I often find them? Yes. Do sometimes I miss? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying that you don't have a right to be, to have your pet peeves and your level of tolerance for what a level of mistakes you can deal with. But that's what the back button is for. I went into a story that the author was easily dropped, didn't use 50, easily 50% of the time wasn't using quotation marks. They just weren't using them. And I got to the point I couldn't deal with it, and and I, I backed out. To me, that got to the point because I couldn't tell what was dialogue and what wasn't. It was like all of a sudden there would be a closed quote, but there never was an opening quote, and it never read like dialogue. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. were they speaking? And I and I was. It got so confusing that finally I just had to back out. And and but that's that was my tolerance, right? I I couldn't that I that that was that was, exceeded my boundaries. Um, but it's I other have a people... boundary around dialogue, and it's that I can't have two characters having dialogue in the same paragraph. I get confused. Yeah, that... I can't keep up. That... It pisses me off. And Or no dialogue tags. Same way. Yeah. It might as well be one big giant-ass block of text. It doesn't make any sense to me. But that's a that's a me thing, and I would never impose my my problem on the writer in particular. To um, some of that, to some degree, some of that to me is like foundation of writing. And like, I feel like sometimes I'm, when I'm reading that to me, I feel like somebody hasn't hit the foundational stuff yet. And so I feel like that that's like, for me, it's where my level is. Like if, if they don't have the foundations of basic dialogue mechanics, um, if I'm seeing a wall of text, 
I can deal with no commas in the whole... I'd rather... You, I've felt this before. I'd rather no commas in the whole fucking thing. Just delete every single comma rather than have a bunch of randomly placed commas. Um, <laughs> I can deal with no punctuation, you know, but but that some of the some just a wall of text or you know 500 word paragraphs i that that to me is like this person doesn't hasn't hit the fundamentals yet and that but that's my limits right so hit the back that to me is like it throws me out i gotta go um but for somebody to send an email saying that you know the i know the difference between the three forms of there (laughs) <laughs> and and the fact that I got it that I typed the wrong thing in one instance and didn't catch it on a read through out of sixty thousand words it threw them out of the threw them out of the story honest to God then stop reading my work because it I is just, never it my ass <laughs> it it is never going to be my work even with a beta is never go, because honestly even the best betas I've ever had miss that kind of thing the things that I most want betas to catch is that kind of typo and missed words and those are the kinds of things that people are least likely to see so those are the kinds of things still even with a beta most likely to make it to the screen so if that's the kind of thing that upsets you just move on um, i would like to say for those of you who've read only time and overlooked the surveillance issue i appreciate you i appreciate your restraint let me tell you how that happened in the original draft of Only Time, I never capitalized the words, when I, the, the veil, when I was referring to the veil of death. I didn't capitalize veil. I decided during my final read-through that I wanted to capitalize the word veil um, in referring to the veil of death because master of death and goddess of death. I was just, I wanted to put some emphasis on the word veil. Now, during the master placer part that I did in Word, I did not specify specifically that I wanted to use a whole word. So every single instance of surveillance in only time had a capital V sticking in the middle of it. <laughs> and so I appreciate all of the all of you who didn't say anything. And also for those of you who were curious as to whether I meant something magical about surveillance, no. <laughs> I did not. Well, that my assumption was that people hadn't said anything because they thought there was some sort of magical spell going on with your surveillance spells or something. <laughs> oh no, it's funny, Shadow. It's funny. I when I saw it, I went, "Son of a bitch!" <laughs> but it was a find replace thing. Yeah, uh, because I in finding replace you have to be very specific about finding whole words, and um, and I didn't click the find whole word, and so of course it corrected every instance of veil it could find, even if it was in the middle of another word. <laughs> Jace, that's hilarious. Sorry that it wasn't magical. I'll try next. I'll, I'll try better next time. <sighs> but yeah, that that happened, and you know the thing is, is that. It's perfectly okay that that happened. Take that in for a minute. It's perfectly okay that that happened. That I made that big six or seven time mistake in my final draft and stuck it on my website and people read it. Close to 40,000 people have read it and read it before I corrected it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I... Uh, I 
okay though. I'm not. I mean, I, I honestly, maybe even a year ago, I'd have been like fucking furious with myself over doing something so stupid. But I just laughed because it was fucking hilarious. Well, I, I, I left to the bad <laughs> assumption that you'd gotten a, something weird in your custom dictionary. That was my weird assumption. I, and then, uh, and then, uh, which was, you know, not true. Um, the moment I saw it, I knew what I had done because I had actually spent like a whole day thinking about whether or not I wanted to capitalize Veil in response to the Veil of Death. And I realized that I did want to capitalize it. So I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I know that's weird. Okay. I, I recognize that that's a weird thing to think about for a long period of time, but I did it. It's what I do. Oh, no. I get I spend a lot of time. Anytime I'm working in anything Harry Potter, which is it's not as often as you, but anytime I'm working in Harry Potter, I spend a stupid amount of time thinking about capitalization. Do I want to capitalize ministry or not? I haven't decided. In this story, I did, and in that story, I didn't. I couldn't explain to you why. The speaking to my Harry Potter fans, I have no idea, and never had any idea why I thought I should capitalize the word atrium. I right, I did that. Used to that too. Like every every building, every every like department or room, like at the department, you know. Um, Department of Mysteries, the, you know, I, which some of those should legitimately be, but also the rooms within the Department of Mysteries, I would capitalize them all. I just, that doesn't make it. Atrium. I'd be the atrium. I don't know why. I don't know why. But I capitalize the word atrium repeatedly in my Harry Potter work, and there's no reason for it. It is legitimately not. There's no reason to do that, okay? I just did it. I just ran... This is just but, adventures and Kira's random capitalization when it comes to Harry Potter. But the veil thing, I did on purpose. I just did not mean to capitalize the V in the middle of surveillance. In the middle of a word, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are occasionally sometimes, like, a typo or something that I... In, in a non-baited work um, that I would want to know about. But there's, like three or four people that exist in the world who understand the kind of typo I would want to know about and that I would trust them to say, Hey, guess what? You know, those, that typo you really care about is in your, is in the, your, your final work. And I'll go, Holy crap. Let me go fix it right now. And it, but usually that would be an isolated, isolated <laughs> thing. And I, and I would go fix it. Um, so said the for instance, the chat room, they went through a phase where they capitalized the word wand. There was a time period where I had read some unfortunate joke on some website. I don't even know what it was. But for a while there, my mind helpfully replaced wand with cock every single time I typed it. So it would be like I would get tickled like a 14-year-old. And <laughs> just... I blame Tom Felton because it has something to do with him being on a talk show and having a wand fight with Daniel. I think I think that I think that you're like deep down you are a fourteen year old boy or something. <laughs> I would get so tickled I couldn't write. So yeah, I get it. I get it. But I had this typo that made it into the published version of Emergence for very briefly, um, where I was talking about somebody shifting into their dragon form, oh, no. and it was shit. <laughs> it, it was shit was what they they. So I said that he was going to, supposed to say he was going to shift. And what made it out of the page was he was going to shit. Well, that is just not the kind of. I've had, I've had way too many misadventures with the word shit in writing. Shirt. There was also, there's also, yeah, the, sh the shirt. Sh yeah, put on his shirt and he put on his shit. Um, 
So that that you know, and there's a few, there's there's and there's some there's some there's some context where I wouldn't care, but you know when somebody's going to that that just was that just wasn't on. So I, I had to fix that right away. But the person who told me knew I would care about that, and so I you know I went and fixed it right away. I have um, this thing where I cannot let any of my characters say the word shit during a sex scene. I can't either. I just it, I it's because there, it's oh. it's because of it's because of this. It's because of the sex scene I was reading once a long time ago oh, no. where and I've told you guys this before though but it was where it was where the, the author was having the character where the character was trying to say they're about to come and they were oh. you know I, it's like oh oh god I'm going to and then and then they they came so it was like I'm going to dot 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 and and they wanted to give an expletive and they could if if they'd said fuck it would have been fine, but no, I'm going to dot 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 shit. <laughs> it's like this is not the phrase you want to put. And since I know what she reads, she was probably reading two dudes fucking. Oh, of course I was, and I was like, and it's and it was not the top saying that they were about to have this moment either. It was the person on the receiving end saying this, and I was like, dudes. So it, it was because not, of that. Not put the word shit in your anal sex scenes. Pro tip. Just leave, just leave it out. Just leave it out. It, just leave it out. Um, I try to remind myself. It's actually on a list that every once in a while I forget to consult that to search for the word shit entirely and evaluate every use of the word shit in my story so that I can make sure that it's not supposed to be short or shift and that it's not in a sex scene. You know, all of the important things that is like, this should be the most important thing I do for my sanity before I post a story. But, um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's, it's a whole thing, but there, there are a few people that I do trust to approach me. Um, I think it was after my first Hobbit story got posted. I had, I had, uh, I had saved a bunch of, um, like all the character names into my custom dictionary, and I saved one of them misspelled into my custom diction oh, <laughs> dictionary. Oh no! It wasn't a big deal, but somebody mentioned you know, somebody did somebody I trusted did say I think that you saved this in your dictionary wrong, and then I had just wanted to go in and do a finder. It was an easy find and replace to do because it was very. It, it basically was that I had the diacritical mark wrong. But mm. not completely wrong. I had the wrong diacritical mark entirely. So every time I typed, what, what it was, every time I typed Dece, I did not want it. I did not want to have to go and try and find the acute accent or whichever one it is. And, yeah, and I did I it had... for Dece, Keely, and Feely. And, right. So every, um, so every time there's I... another one, too. There's so every time I typed Dece, it would autocorrect to have the right accent on it. But I'd, I'd put the wrong, the, 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 the diacritical, the, the accent mark going the wrong way. It was just, I'd, you know, so in, in, so it was just, it was just the reverse of what it was supposed to be, and so when the story posted in the final version, somebody that I again, somebody, this is okay, somebody trusted me said, do you know that you've got the accent mark going the wrong way? I was like, ah, crap, and that was in my custom, and I had not typed any of them, not a single one. I had just saved it to my custom dictionary wrong. So um, I went in and I fixed that, and um, you know, I. Uh, but most people, I just, I just don't want to like. People always think that they have the typo you want to hear about, and ninety-nine percent of the time, it's just not true. It's just not true. So that has nothing to do with the whole beta process. Um, 
But the beta process is honestly a lot of the reason we go through the beta process is in the hopes, weirdly, aside from the pressure of fandom. You know, fandom tells you this is the norm. This is the way we do things. You have a beta. Um, who is your beta? You know, there actually are whole challenges you can't participate in without a beta. Um, I, I ever told, you know, at one point I, I, um, I had, was thinking about signing up for one of those challenges. <laughs> just, and I thought about, well, it had required a beta. And I was like, I didn't want to deal with beta at that time. And I thought if I decided to do the challenge, I would just put my professional, my professional pen name down as my, the name I edit under <laughs> as my beta. <laughs> you can always stick my other, I don't care. <laughs> um, but I mean, you have to ask yourself is what do you owe fandom anything and if you do do you owe fandom perfection i i think you owe yourself a certain level of you owe your writing um a certain level of of respect and care uh so if you're putting it out there to the world you know there are tools that anybody can use to make their writing better um you don't have to put yourself to the torture of Grammarly. Honestly, Words Grammar Checker has come a long way. A long, long way. It catches a lot. Yeah. I mean, it ca- it catches different classes. It actually, it catches stuff that Grammarly doesn't because it, it has a, its own different, like, learning that it, it has. It has its own algorithm. And, um, oh, God, Jace. But um, we'll come back to yeah, that Yeah, I saw that, and I'm just kind of horrified. I don't know what right? to think about it. But there are one of the things we decided when we did the quantum bang is there are a lot of there are a lot of bangs that require beta and we're like we're not going to do that we were going to do that you could get a beta if you wanted um, but that you had to you know spell check was required and um, we encourage you to grammar you use some sort of you know automated grammar checker and the thing about requiring beta in these challenges is that not all betas are created equal. No, and and not not everybody even has any. It, it's some people who have severe anxiety issues that can turn them off of a writing challenge right there because they don't may not want to deal with that whole process. Um, and I don't blame them. I mean, that was honestly one of the worst parts about getting into fandom for me was getting hooked up with beta. I mean, we have had authors in on Just Right and in private tell us that a terrible beta experience not only put them off fandom it put them off writing for years so to require somebody to expose themselves to the beta process in order to participate in the challenge seems like an unreasonable boundary to set it is and um somebody has commented in the chat room that they participated in a challenge where they were randomly assigned betas from the participants. Uh, I can't think of any, uh, the only thing I could think of worse than being required to have a beta for a challenge is that the challenge was going to assign me a beta. Uh, I, that, that'd be a no. I would be no. I would not sign up for that. I would never sign up for a challenge that put me through something like that. Um, more and more, I like a challenge to encourage me to ex- explore I don't want a whole lot of limits, which is why we changed the way Rough Trade works as far as, like, word count goes. Um, That's why, you know, Quantum Bang continues to evolve when it comes to format and word count. Um, Because we we, we want people to be challenged and engaged and entertained, um, and we don't want to stick you in a box. Yeah. 
unless you need a box. And if you want me to give you some boundaries, I can give you some boundaries. <laughs> but be very careful how you ask for those boundaries because she used to do it professionally. That's right. <laughs> um, we did. And I meant when that we did... exactly the way it sounded for those innocents of you. <laughs> In every way. Um, so when we did the when we did the feeding frenzy, we did sort. I'm going to say sort of require beta, um, and the reason why I say sort of require beta is because we did let everybody know we were baiting, but the beta was not what I would call normal beta process. It was um, very high level beta, and mostly it was about um, keeping all because you're talking it was what 13 or 14 different writers mm -hmm. who needed to be consistent. Somebody had to do that. Somebody we had, had, we to, had be... to have continuity across the top yeah. so that the story made sense at the end, which isn't the same thing as like a nitty gritty line edit. Right. So, I mean, and there was some element of like, hey, you got a typo here or whatever, but it was like, hey, we're going to be looking at basically typos. A couple, we're going to look for typos and we're going to be looking for consistency, but we're not here to bust your balls and make you be a different writer. Um, we did do we we had determined like some stylistic decisions about how this how it was going to be for for continuity is sake so like we were writing in in um past tense third person past tense and we did have some writers who were present tense writers and they still they wanted to do it they they came on board even though they were past present tense writers and they were willing to embrace the challenge of trying to write in in past tense but that meant that they likely had more typos going into the um in, into that process and, it, and so the beta process was about helping not not putting a, a burden on the challenge on and that really wasn't really a writing challenge so much it was you know we invited some people to come in do you want to come and do this um we didn't like have signups uh is like here's an idea do you want to participate kind of thing so that was a really different kind of thing so i mean the reason i um mentioned that is because and i know i think we had at least one person in that who had never been through beta before um i don't know if they'd ever want to do beta again <laughs> i don't think they enjoyed beta at all um but i will say that it was a the betas we did were very minimal compared to what a lot of people do digging in and like correcting and telling people how to how because sometimes i think fandom sometimes looks at beta as an opportunity for the beta to put their stamp on your writing and that is a weird mentality that the beta reader beta readers can come in and have and we tried to be sure that that was not happening when we did feeding frenzy um, so the, the two people who were doing the baiting for Feeding Frenzy were pretty much, you know, very mission oriented about the approach. It's like, we've got just a few things we're trying to deal with here. And beyond that, it, it's, it's not, not our purview. So that's very different than going into a challenge and you sign up for a challenge and they say, hey, here's this person you've never met before. They're baiting for you. That would be uh, a no for me, dog. I don't think so. Nah, dog. That's a that's actually telling someone that you're going to and you have no choice but to invite somebody else into your process. 
And that's a big fat fucking no from me. Um, yeah. I'll, the difference between professional editing and debate process for me is, you know, well, number one, it's monetary. Um, I hate editing. Always have. It's not because my words are gold. I don't believe that. I never have. I know I'm not perfect. I don't expect perfection from myself when it comes to my writing. But when I'm finished with something, I'm done. And I want to move on. Well, especially professional, you, you, you've actually emotionally detached from that by the time you've sent that yes, off, and now it's back in your face. You have to detach from your professional work to take it seriously and to treat it like a product. That's what it becomes when it when you hand it over to a publisher. It's no longer your word baby; it's a product, and so you have to divorce yourself from it in that respect. Um, and I never have to divorce myself from my babies in fandom, but there is there, there does come a point when I'm done with something and I'm ready to move on. And there's no incentive for me not to. And by incentive, I mean contractual obligation. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> nine times out of ten, I already cashed that check. <laughs> and... That makes a big difference. And th this this proprietary thing in fandom. And I also think that some people, and I, I think that's what actually happened with my first beta experience when she shared my work with her friends. And that's how she phrased it. All my friends read it and they love it. She told me this during the beta process. Like, I'd be thrilled by that. That she'd shared my, before it was published, with other people. That's like somebody, it isn't exactly the same, but it's like your mother-in-law announcing your birth of your child before you can. It's just, it's just gross. It, it, it is gross. a complete, it's a, it's a complete betrayal of trust. It's a complete betrayal of trust. I mean, I, I had. I think she volunteered to beta my work so she could read it in advance. And that was her own oh, goal. That is, that is, that is, that is, that is shockingly common um, in fandom. I've but... had a lot of people offer to beta for me, especially in Harry Potter. And every time I, it looks like somebody who just wants to read my work in advance and wants to have the perceived access that my other my that my writing friends and betas have to my work cuz most people assume that Jillian Ladyholder have unfettered access to my writing folder and that's not accurate no i love them but no that's not accurate <laughs> and i wouldn't and i I'll say i wouldn't want it oh jace that's hilarious is english your first language or your second we're waiting for an answer <laughs> It's your first language. You know what? You go find their email and you tell them that I said in the immortal words of Phil to suck my dick from the back. From the back, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I had a, I had a beta, which is my favorite beta, uh, beta, favorite favorite beta ever. Not not dissing any of my betas, current or past. She was my favorite beta, beta ever. She was, she was dirty old lady kind of. See, it's the dirty old ladies are always the great betas, right? Um. But she, um, ever she would spend the summers somewhere where there was no internet. Like I don't know how she did it, but she would spend the summers. So she would ask me, you know, and the thing is, beta process was, you know, did I have anything she wanted? I I wanted her to beta while I was while she was gone, and um, if I did, and you know, and the thing is, you're talking about a two or three month wait for her to beta, um. Uh, she would either either I would print it and mail it to her. So I had, I had a few options. I could either email it to her like usual and she would print it out and take it with her. Or if I finished something I wanted her to beta while she was gone, I could print it out and mail it to her out in the sticks, wherever the heck she was that she had no internet. 
or phone, you know, off in the boonies. Um, and she'd beta it on paper <laughs> and send it to me. So I get this whole experience, right? But she asked me the first time she did this, she, you know, she and I talked about this was one of the things she did. Um, she, so she and her husband go off and do this. Um, and she asked me, she said, do you mind if I read like this stuff to my husband sometimes? And I was like, I thought about it. I was like, it's just the two of you out there. She's like, yeah, it's just the two of us. And it gets kind of quiet and lonely. I'm like, well, I mean, if he really wants to hear it, sure. I'm <laughs> trying to imagine but this she... little lady reading her equally little old husband, your filthy porn in the middle of the woods. Yeah, but this, that's what was going on, right? And it, and this was this is in my <laughs> this is in my X Files days, and y'all, I was very dark. There's my record. You're dark, 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 filthy, dark, or... filthy, and pretty violent too, right? So I'm like, this feels more like a horror novel, right? She's, I'm sitting there, imagine them rocking in front of the fire, and she's reading while she's, and you know, marking up the page, reading to her husband, and I was just like, <laughs> the visual just kills me. It just kills me. I love just, this. I love this. Yeah. I love her. I hope. I hope he enjoyed it. <laughs> She um when she when she died because you know she passed uh, on and um yeah he reached out to me and uh, um it was probably one of the most poignant moments I've ever had in fandom and he said she really loved you Aww. I loved her too sometimes you have like these relationships um, that that you encounter during your creative process that really kind of impact you on a level that that's hard to speak to. Um, because sometimes, like, when I'm, whenever I get ready to publish a new Stargate work, I think to myself, I hope, I, I feel like Lisa would love this. And she is my little old Canadian lady who died. And um, she, she, her last email I got from her was her telling me that she was going into hospice. And um, she was thanking me for all the Stargate work that I had done because she was a huge McShep shipper. So whenever I put out a story with John and Rodney in it, I think to myself, well, I, I think she really likes it. <laughs> in the back of my and mind you, and it's been like five years and I still think that every time I publish John and Rodney yeah. I feel like she would fucking love the Vanguard <laughs> she would and you know and the thing is it's like I I would send off you know I would sometimes when I would know that she was getting ready to go off for um, the you know her summer I would send her something that wasn't even really ready for beta for her to take off with her not just so she would have it for, I just remember her husband out there rocking by the fire in the mountains, in the woods, you know. Well, don't anything we, to read, damn it. <laughs> reading stuff. this stuff, you know. Um, and, uh, and she was really, she's like, seriously, if you, if you if you have more you want me to work on, if you have another chapter or something that you write, you want me to use, and this is back when, like, you, you finish a chapter, you'd send up to betas. The mentality was a little bit different then. So there were a couple times when I'd, you know, I'd have, 10 or 15,000 words or 20,000 words. I'd print them out and send them to her out there in the sticks. And, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't that I was so desperate for beta and it wasn't that I was really desperate to wait three months to get a beta done because I've never been so desperate to, to wait three months to get 15,000 words beta. But, um, I just, you know, i I always, I just, it was a thing. I wanted to send her off to her, her, her summer retreat with something to read. With, with Silky Violet Point to read. Yeah, I, so sweet. I never, I never published the last story she baited for me. Aw. Never, no one ever read it but her. 
that's awesome actually that's that, that, that's kind of beautiful so i mean there are really can can develop really powerful and impactful but the thing is we had a powerful impactful relationship that had nothing whatsoever to do with beta um that was sort of the framework i would send her stuff but we talked about the writing and the stories otherwise and obviously there was nothing intrusive about that relationship and even as she had said she could not beta anymore she couldn't take the time to edit i would still have talked to her about my writing i would still have had that 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 discourse with her because i trusted her and i trusted her opinions and um and i it's also very valuable just... to have a person a group of people in your life you can throw your work at and say hey read this and tell me if it's stupid <laughs> <laughs> Which right. I have done to Lady Holder and Azure and Jilly um, over the years because sometimes, you know, you write in a very small, narrow space and you need um, you need that broad perspective to, to make sure you're on point sometimes. And, um, you know, and that takes some trust because you're asking them to tell you if something's stupid with the, with the expectation that they're going to tell you it's not. But also the expectation that if you have done something crazy that they'll tell you that they'll be honest with you about it and say hey this is a little weird <laughs> are you sure this is what you want to do yeah and it's i think that that is what matters more than the um that than the actual edits and the corrections that that's the part that matters i remember once i sent her um something as a, a couple of scenes and i said hey can you can you have We'll just say his name is Bob. How can you have Bob read this? Um, she says, not me. I said, well, you can read it too. But I need him to tell me <laughs> if this is if this is too emotional for two men. Um, and she writes me back like a couple hours later. She goes, well, I don't know, but he's crying. So I I have. <laughs> <laughs> you made Bob cry. I made Bob. She's, I'll, I'll get I'll, I'll get back to you with more more when he's when he's not when he's not a hot mess. <laughs> Was like you've emotionally destroyed my husband, but great job! It was fun. It was really <laughs> wonderful. I enjoyed it. So you know, because it was like he was there, and I knew he read my work, but he and I had never had a conversation. But it was like, you know, I was like, did I get the tone of the writing these two men wrong? Was this the scene between them too emotional? Right? Did I did I go too far the wrong way? And then she's like, he's crying, and I'm like, okay. And you know, and that's what was valuable in our writing relationship was the being able to, like you said, throw something at the wall and say, is, am I off here? Or get, or throw something at Bob and say, hey, Bob. Um, hey, Bob. And it was, is it, it, and it was the camaraderie around the writing. And um, it, it was never very quickly. It was not about the corrections. It was not about the corrections. And um, so there is a point at which of course it feels nice to feel like you have some confidence that your work has less errors or typos in it um, than it would have had if you had um, not had that that but the thing is sometimes I think that 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 attention to my typos actually makes me more paranoid about them um, but the funny thing is I had one beta and sometimes a beta they can't see perspective is that she was really like her, her she really was very good i was i will say she's better than probably anybody i've ever encountered at spotting passive voice and uh she would correct every instance of passive voice and i told a passive voice isn't necessarily wrong 
No. Sometimes you need a little passiveness in your narrative to... It, it doesn't hinder pace unless you do it a lot. But sometimes yeah. you need that lull of a passive voice to kind of moderate the pace in your narrative. And yeah. being able to do that um, naturally is just a skill that you develop over the years as you write. Yeah, um, how much so passive something voice... You should, like actively look for is it, it, right. it's just going to come to you naturally how much passive voices in your writing is something that you will develop and also but i started noticing like that most of the she was catching that and i started noticing i was getting tense about it uh she's like I can't, and she made a comment something but i can't believe how much there's a lot more passive voice in the story than there was in the last one and i was like oh my god and then i realized that like 90 percent of the passive voice was in dialogue and it was this character voice it was the way i was writing that character voice was written a lot this character was speaking a lot in passive voice and it's because it's the way i heard them in my head so she basically was saying change your character voice and i asked her i said well do you realize that you're correcting how the character is speaking she said, well, it's still an error. Okay. No, it's not. Not I mean, really. Because... Char character voice matters, and there there is a room for typos in. There actually legit not typos in dialogue. Yeah, yeah. There's room for legit not typos. There's room for legitimate bad grammar in dialogue. Um, because no one speaks perfect grammar. No one does. I mean, there are linguistic quirks that every single person has when they speak that they are required to create otherwise all your characters are going to sound the fucking same that's what i'm getting at awkwardly <laughs> you want your characters to sound natural you want them to sound sound um well but fur is a that that's to me f-e-r for four it, that's almost more accent than um grammar and i don't actually believe in writing an accent i don't write an yeah, oh one because i couldn't fucking read i could i barely understood hagrid in the books okay and the only i don't think i actually did understand him the only time i my only nods to accents is a drop g i don't yeah i that's about it i don't i don't write accents otherwise so i so even if a character said fur or yeah i typically although i will do yeah occasionally um I, I just don't put that kind of... Even if the character says it, uh, it even if I can hear it in my head, it typically isn't going to make it on the page. Because to me, like, that'd be like writing a French accent. I just wouldn't do it. Um, But, you know, there are ways you can put... You know, there are things you can put together to the, that that can imply accent without actually writing an accent. The, the rhythm of speech can be, can be put together in the way... Um, You've used in the way you use punctuation and the word choices and the word order. Um, there's ways to to construct and imply accent without actually, you know, putting a Z in for every S for Fleur Delacour. It just does not need to happen. It drives me fucking bonkers. It's nuts, y'all. I don't believe that. I mean, it's a gimmick. Number one. It's a gimmick. And anytime a gimmick interferes with your ability to convey actual information to your reader, you've gone too far. Yeah. I mean, you've really gone too far. But some people really feel like they have to write every act. But the problem is, is when you've got, um, they're not really doing anything to convey the English accent. So that, that apparently doesn't matter. But okay. Um, 
uh, by English, I mean British accent. Um, but you got the French accent. You've got you got somebody who's French. You got somebody who's Bulgarian um, on screen at the same time. Um, at, at some point, it just starts to become unreadable. Plus, and then you got Hagrid. Um, it just starts to become unreadable. And sometimes and I sit there and I'll, it's, I'll... Sometimes it's perfectly okay to tell the reader that just tell them thick it, French accent. And then just <laughs> say the just get it say the words, right? And just <laughs> they're like, gonna get it. And just sit there, kind of going, "What?" I mean, I've I've read some people's interpretation of a French accent, and I just kind of stare and go, "I don't get it." <laughs> I don't understand. What are they? It would have been what are they better to tell if you me? just put it in French and let me Google translate it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Infinitely better. But you know, yeah. But the thing is, is that I just as I love. I mean, I'm a writer. I was born one, I'll die one. Um, and the act of writing, telling the story, is is what I want to focus on going forward. And um, I I don't want to waste the time I have left doing editing. I just don't. I have fibromyalgia. I, I have a fibro fog in the extreme. Some days I can't write, y'all. I mean, I can't. You mean it's just it, it. Beta-ing? My brain doesn't work. I'm not gonna. Well, yeah, I'll edit my own shit. But I'm not gonna beta anymore, and that's re- one of the reasons why I'll probably never write professionally again, is because I don't want to waste my time with that. I actually find the editing process, professional editing process, in some ways, is weirdly a lot less painful than the. Um, it's also quicker, honestly. My last it is edit faster. Took me tw- ten hours, professional edit. Okay, zip, zip, zip. Done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, my side, my side of the edit for my last book, um, it was. I mean, I didn't have. I just had to go through and accepting or re- accepting or there's not a truly rejecting. There's either accepting what the the editor wants or telling them why I don't like the change that they made, and then making the requested changes. Um, probably took an hour and a half per edit. At most, at most. I mean, there's honestly more angst in psyching myself up and then doing the actual work. So it's just... Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I'll never publish professionally again. I'm not saying that. I probably will. But I am at the point where I'm not going to beta my fanfiction anymore because I got better shit to do. And like I said, some, some days I can't write. And I do worry that one day I'm not going to be able to write um, because of fibro and sometimes my pain's a nine you know even with muscle relaxers and so there's gonna be a day and i don't want to have wasted yeah i hear you i'm not trying to be a pansy i just i don't want to end up having get there and having wasted all that time on something so ridiculous as making fan fiction perfect for people who are going to bitch anyway and they will no matter how no matter how perfect... The people who won't bitch if I beta or not beta aren't going to bitch. But the people who will bitch about me not doing beta will bitch even if I beta. So, it's... And again, motherfuckers, it's free. Uh, Jay, he's talking about migraines. One of the things that really helped me with my migraines is taking... I used to just take my migraine medication by itself... And then I started thinking about 
what I should be doing on top of my migraine medication that I had not been doing. So I started researching. And one of the things that I've been doing is taking an anti-inflammatory with my migraine medication and also icing my head. I highly recommend sticking an ice pack on your face. You can buy cold packs that go across your, your eyes and you strap it to your head. Kind of like a sleeping mask, but it's cold. Um, but take an anti-inflammatory when you take your, if you're taking something like Imitrex, take your Imitrex, take an anti-inflammatory with it. Ask your doctor first, of course. But I've really noticed a difference when I take the anti-inflammatory with my um, Imitrex. It's very helpful. And also, again, I highly recommend an ice pack face, face ice pack. I honestly, it is the best. So Sybil is saying that her Nero recommended a leave and an ice pack. Yeah, I do use a leave um, with my migraine medication. It is just, it's super helpful. But the ice pack is, does wonders because honestly, if you get your Imitrex dosage just right, you take your leave and you put your ice pack on, you can go to sleep. <laughs> Which is honestly the best you can do for your migraine is to sleep. Yeah, I agree. Your doctor, there, there are some over-the-counter medications specifically made for migraines that you might investigate. Um, but there is no reason why you shouldn't get a prescription for Imitrex unless it conflicts with something that you're some, something else you're taking. So maybe get a new doctor <laughs> who takes your seri who takes you seriously because migraines can be debilitating. I mean, I think I'm at the point in my life where. Um... Just a few things about my thoughts about the beta process as the time has gone on. It's one, I ask myself, do I have anything to learn from the beta process anymore? Um, I think you learn more from the alpha, right? Oh, way more. Way more. I actually do learn from the alpha process, and I don't feel like I really learn much from beta. Um, I can't think of the last time. And people catch my typos. Sometimes people put in a correction that... I can't. I just but can't think the last time. someone point out your typo isn't teaching you anything. No, it's just because catching a typo. Because a typo is a mistake that you would have noticed if you'd have noticed it, right? Yeah. I mean, give me, if I'd left that project alone for a year or two, I might have got that typo myself. Um, or, you know, the day after you publish it and put it on your website. <laughs> yeah, or some, sometimes just changing the medium and the font will allow you to see yeah. your typos. Uh, but there is also, I can't think of the last time I learned something. Like, literally legit learn something about um, grammar punctuation from um, the beta process. And I, and I don't mean that negatively towards my beta. It's just that th there aren't many people that ha I, I work with that know more about, that have baited for me that know more about grammar and punctuation than I do already. Uh, and I don't well, no, mean that you're our grammar girl. <laughs> like, hey, right. dude, if I do this, do I need to put this comma here? No. Nine times out of ten, if I ask her if I need a comma, she's going to tell me, no, you don't. <laughs> right. You don't need a comma. <laughs> um, so there are some people who are very, I'm not, and I'm not saying that there aren't some people who are very good. There are some, I've seen some very high level discussions about grammar and punctuation and stuff on just right. Um, those people aren't baiting for me. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> and I'm, and it's not, I'm not saying I needed that beta, it, it, but I, at what point do I, do I want to nitpick my um, grammar to that, to my grammar punctuation to that degree so that I can learn a little bit more about a comma here or there? And honestly, and it also comes to the point where sometimes when people tell me that I'm wrong about something about a comma, the last time somebody 
told me I was wrong about something about it. It really was a weird thing about a comma. Um, I think it was a comma. I actually, that may not have even been a comma. But it, it made me go back to my, I, I always check. I, I don't take... I'm at the, I don't take people on blind faith about this stuff, typically. I'm like, really? Um, because it, sometimes I look at it and I see it and I go, oh, yeah, that was a mistake and I fix it. But it, sometimes I look at it and I go, are they sure about that? And then I go, Google. I start Googling and go, where did they get that from? And um, I start trying to figure out where they got that from. Where did they get that from? Where did they get that from? Where did they get that from? And this person was correcting me to AP Style Guide. And I was mm. like... And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Um, I don't write to AP. That's not... And, and, and it to them, it didn't matter. But it does matter. Because if you... you aren't aware, there are two major style guides that get used. One is, the, one is the AP, which is the American Psychological Association Style Guide. And the other is the Chicago Style Manual. And AP is Associated Press. Associated Press. What, did yeah. I say psychological? Yeah, that's what you get me. I was I had the I, um, I, I, I knew had what the, you I had the DSM four on my desk earlier today. Um, it, it's been sitting on my desk all day, so like, I had this word association with AP. Um, anyways, the Associated Press manual and the Chicago Style. Most fiction publishing houses use a version of a style guide built on the Chicago Style manual. It is very rare that anybody but the Associated Press uses the AP unless you're in college and you're like at a liberal arts school um a lot of liberal arts schools okay so there is an APA Jace okay okay well there is but that there are but when you get into um there are quite a few um style manuals for medical there's the um there's a style there's the most there are a couple of common style manuals for technical writing um there's like a several for medical there's there's a different um style manual for the different branches of the for the military the military has their own yeah. style manual style guide so but when it comes to mainstream publication the big ones are chicago manual of style awesome. and a and, associated, and press. associated press and that's for mainstream publication so most things that are in print that are not um technical articles or um medical or journal that kind of thing are either AP or Chicago Manual of Style and AP. Actually, Jace, I think I have an APA manual now that you've now that you've said that, but um, I did actually mean the Associated Press. That just wasn't what came out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, but it depends upon. I mean, whether or not you use one of the one of the various. I call them the technical style guides, which is which is what would be the medical or the scientific. Because there's also a bunch of scientific style guides out there. What's um, the MLA those... stand for? MLA. A medical, med was that medical and legal, I think? Mm, probably. Apparently the Canadian press also has their own style guide, but most fiction modern, publishers are going to use the Chicago Style Manual. Modern so Language Google, Association. Modern I'm not familiar language. with that. But there are, there's also a style guide for... Um, I was not exposed to the MLA style in college. Oh, I, I believe we did use the AP, or the APA. It might have actually been APA, because I did do a social science. Um, and I don't think the MLA became the Chicago. The Chicago's coming has been out for... Chicago's been around for an, a long time. An age. Um, but I've never encountered a publisher for fiction that did not use the Chicago Style Manual. 
and did not have their own house style guide built on the Chicago style manual. So if you are interested in writing and editing in a fiction, I suggest, highly suggest that you get some, get the most current version of the Chicago style manual you can afford <laughs> because it's not cheap. So if you have to get a previous edition, it's better than having no edition at all. Okay, uh, AMA is American Medical Association. APA mm -hmm. is the American Psychological Association. Um, then there's Chicago. What in the world is? I think we had to use MLA in high school, but in Chicago, I I kind of flipped between the AP and the APA. Oh, the other one. The other one that is common. Um, it, it's less common now. Um, is BB Blue Book the blue book of style um that one is really i think that one was really subsumed by chicago um i have a little style guide what what is it called it's the tiny one i highly recommend that everybody have it it's um what's it called? it's a little bitty guide it's um god what was it is it the book of style um uh is it's strong you can get a pdf of it the Elements of Style. Thank you very much, Mark. The Elements of Style Google by Strong. Elements of William, Style. William Strong yeah. or something like that? Yeah, something like Google it. You can get a PDF of it. It will teach you everything you need to know. It, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's a mini. It's it's the basics. Um, It'll I mean, Chicago, Chicago Manual Style is, is... But yeah, so this person, they were giving me AP rules. And AP in Chicago, uh, they diverge in... Particularly in how they handle... Honestly, the biggest divergence is around things like how things are handled a lot in like um, numbers and in because it, Chicago's geared towards book presentation, right? It's not geared towards newspaper newsprint. It's not geared towards articles. So how it handles like the conveying numbers and percentages and the, the rules around that are very different. And um yeah, so, yeah, she was really correcting me towards um, AP, and um, and she told me it didn't matter, and I was like, it does matter. It matters um, a lot. So, Washington University did put out, I guess it's Washington University, it's Washington.edu, pretty sure it's Washington State, it might not be, don't, don't, don't quote me on it, sent out a PDF of this, I'm going to put the PDF in the link there for you guys, it's 26 pages, it'll get you through your day, and it's free. It's called The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. So, but I, I don't want any reader throwing a style guide at me. <laughs> no, no. But the thing is, when you, when, you are, when you are writing in professionally, you usually are beholden to, or yeah. writing academically, you're usually beholden to some form of style guide. And um, when I write... Um, when I do technical writing, um, I'm usually most of the time it is Microsoft, the Microsoft style guide, the one that they came up with. You know, almost everybody still uses it, even though, you know, it, it, I don't know why Microsoft's name's on it. Um, but, um, but anyway, I am at the point where I just don't feel like I, I learn much from the beta process. I learn more from alpha process about I can't say I would never go through beta again especially but it wouldn't be like I need a full-on beta thing it would be like usually I, I the thing I can imagine most likely I can imagine me saying hey could I get somebody to do a read-through on this would be to help me with a continuity help me check for continuity issues um, because sometimes when you've gone through 
especially if you've done some significant edits or you've done a significant change in something, it, it can help to have somebody do a read through and help you see if you, if you caught all your continuity, all the changes that you're, you know, you've made it a big change and you, that you should have ripples and did you catch them all? And sometimes just reading it through yourself does not, does not cut it. Um, but that requires you also to have a beta that can respect that boundary and help you find, and, and that knows how to find a continuity issue. So, I mean, that, it, that requires a kind of a perfect storm kind of thing is beta that can respect your boundary, that can help you find a continuity issue, and, you know, and that I have a continuity issue that needs, needs help. Let's with. just call that Alpha 2.0. Alpha 2.0. <laughs> it could be. It could be Alpha 2.0. Um, because... I think more and more that fandom treats beta like it's a like it's a line edit, and um, I, I'm not here for it. No. I'm just not. But like, I mean, like some of the things Kara spoke to earlier. I've I've talked before on the podcast, um, so many people already know this that um, I've been wrestling with for a couple of years now, and getting the diagnosis settled down. But it was definitely finalized over the course of the panorama. Um, the um, that the blood cancer diagnosis, and that, I mean, it, there's no telling where the where that's what that where that will go, uh, or how long that will all take to wind out. Um, but you know, I did eventually get on medication for it. Um, that took a while because medication is very expensive, and I had to apply for grants and funding to pay for it. But the medication makes me very tired very tired and and that's a whole thing so um so i do think more critically um about where i spend how i spend my creative energy and what i spend it on than i used to um because you know i don't when i when i if i stack rank the things i need to do that aren't actually writing um the beta process just isn't, it, it's not above the line and it hasn't been for a while. And that's why my backlog of, you know, honestly, even editing hasn't been above the line for me for a while, which is why my backlog of works that need to be edited is so huge right now. Um, and what I mean by, by above the line is there, it's a concept of like in zero based budgeting, which is where you draw your line at zero and you say, this is how, this is, this is, if you can't go into negative, you know, you assuming, assuming you're not allowed to go into negatives, um, you only have this much, you know, to expend and this much to do. So you have to stack rank things in priority order and anything that can't be done falls below the line. And editing has been falling below the line creatively. It's like, I'm it, and there are days, however, when I will be in the mood. I'm not in a headspace to write, and I will then pick up something and edit it. That that happens. And there are actually whole months where I just get in that headspace to edit. And that will be. And it will look like I will suddenly be shockingly productive because I will suddenly have a ton of stuff posted. Um, but all that means is I just got in the mood to edit. <laughs> it didn't mean that I was suddenly shockingly productive. It just means that I am. You know, it doesn't mean that I was any more. It, it certainly doesn't mean I was more productive because the productivity happened a long time before any of that occurred. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the reasons why I kind of retreated into fandom is I needed, I needed the creative outlet and I needed um, to explore my, myself as a writer 
without the pressure. Um, but there is this performative expectation in fandom that can be quite toxic. And there are lots of elements, actually, that can be quite toxic. Um, my husband was reading an article uh, this woman wrote about the Rings of Power. Um, and she pointed out several other fandoms where the canon allowed for expansion beyond what was written. Um, and that included characters of color. And some asshat Lord of the Rings fan called her racist against British people. Because she was pleased there were people of color in Rings of Power. Now, I didn't go over there. But I wanted to. And what I wanted to tell this asshat was there are there were no British people in The Lord of the Rings. There wasn't a single British character in The Hobbit or in The Lord of the Rings. Not a single one. So Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit did not take place in Europe, in Great Britain, in Ireland, or in Scotland. No matter how much time you invest in trying to stick a map of Europe on top of Arda, it is never going to work because Arda is a fictional fucking place on a different fucking planet. Thank you. Putting that out there for you. But also, let me go on record and also say that it's impossible for a woman of color to be racist against British men. I declare it impossible. <laughs> Just... Well, it's pretty much impossible for anybody to be racist against <laughs> British men. <laughs> Specifically. <sighs> I just want to go over there and type, like respond to his comments, say, okay, colonizer. <laughs> but I refrained. I just, I don't, I don't, but you know, Lord of the, I was telling my husband, I said, look, there are, there are some really terrible, entitled fanatics in fandom. And if you ask anybody who spent any amount of time in fandom, they'll tell you that the worst possible fans out there are in this particular order, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, they'd be crazy. <laughs> just down the line they get crazy and we lord can give the... fucking examples on every single one of them yeah i mean lord of the rings um some of the problems we saw in star wars and lord of the rings is a long time been like i would say like it, it's like og toxic fandom like way back mm -hmm. um long before harry potter was a thing long before you know I mean, Star Wars has been around for a long time. That's not even about that. But it wasn't the toxic cesspit of the fandom that it is now. Um, it was, and I think the issue with Lord of the Rings was the elitism and the gatekeeping that made it so toxic. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And now they're adding in the other elements of the toxicity we see in Harry Potter and Star, and, and the same different different flavors, but the same kind of toxicity we see in Harry Potter and Star Wars, especially in the Star. Weirdly, I think we see some more. It's more similar to the toxicity we see in Star Wars is creeping into Lord of the Rings. 
But Lord of the Rings um, toxicity used to be pretty much confined to just an epic amount of gatekeeping. And, and, you know, if you didn't know all the supplemental works, and it's interesting is like if you know somebody who really knows Tolkien and knows all the supplemental works and knows a lot about, I mean, they could just rip those gatekeepers to shreds for not making any kind of logical sense. Um, Someone said in the chat room they would add the Sentinel to that. Yeah, I would say the Sentinel is very toxic, but... In the scheme of things, the Sentinel's a tiny fandom. Yeah, and also there were, um, you probably stumbled into Sentinel when it was, I'm, I'm going to guess Live Journal. Or was it yeah. Yahoo Groups? Live Journal? Um, I'm not um, sure both. Yeah, see, it, that was the sort of when fandom was, um, you could have had a very different experience of the Sentinel fandom depending upon where you experienced the Sentinel fandom. So you could have been involved in a very healthy, productive, happy, you know, group on Yahoo and been completely oblivious to what was going on over on maybe a bigger community um, over in... Um... But Sentinel fandom was certainly sort of, I would say, one of the, one of the big fandoms even for being a tiny fandom it was a, a big fandom for really really interestingly expressing homophobia in some new and interesting ways um and finding some new and interesting ways to 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 just be really explore toxic masculinity and just it, it was it was really kind of next level um internalized homophobia yeah so i mean but the thing is you had one basically um one basic segment of fandom um, that because it was kind of like you had fandom was, was very decentralized at that time. Um, it was kind of like all over the place. You had, you, you had to, you had to know where the Yahoo groups were. You had to know where the live journals were. Um, you could very easily have had a very different experience of, of these things than when things started centralizing more and you had more exposure. It was very difficult to avoid the, the mood around a fandom between Tumblr and Twitter and AO3 and the comment section. And it's like, it's very difficult to avoid the mood of a fandom now. Um, with the centralization of the archive and stuff and the way that live journal kind of imploded and stuff. I mean, I think some people, some fandoms still manage it, but it's a lot harder to be oblivious to the culture in a fandom than it used to be. Um, but yeah, I, I Sentinel, when you, if you were, if you were knee deep in that, in that, the, in the bigger part of Sentinel fandom that I think was on live journal, I think, mm. um, yeah, it was pretty fucking toxic. Um, but very, I think, confined. But, like, with Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and even in Harry Potter, um, the fandom is spread out over so much media that it creates a huge problem. Yeah. and I, I mean, mean and it's, like, it's not just LiveJournal and it's not just Yahoo groups. It's, it's Tumblr and Instagram and Twitter and and discord and it just it it an ao3 and it travels around and they i was telling my husband about dogpiling um and he was just appalled he was like what <laughs> they they do this for fun i said yeah i think they do i mean they, yeah. they pick a target they dogpile on them share screenshots and see how and act, act how proud they are for being cruel and vicious to strangers your mamas must be so proud of you 
Yeah, right. But I mean, for some people, their experience of like something like the Sentinel fandom was nothing but that archive, that big archive that existed for a long time. It was what, 307 Prospect Place or whatever it was called? Which, event, which eventually. Something. They, yeah, they never. Oh, two, eight, whatever it was. It was the something. It was, it was, it was basically, it was Jim's address was the. Right. Um, Jim's address was. It, some people never they read that um which is basically how i think i i got stumbled onto there from something else x-files related 852 prospect yeah 307 was jim's apartment number his loft number was 307 um i think the things you remember right the things you remember i Um, my sentinel exposure before i ended up on those stupid awards and got braided um was 852 prospect and that Zine, um, mongoose, the mongoose yeah. thing. So someone back me up on that. I'm not sure. It's something mongoose. My my mongoose, fucking mongoose. <laughs> That's not what it was called. <laughs> I can't I repeat that. My mongoose, maybe. Yeah, and uh, that that was the extent of my experience with the Sentinel fandom until I got nominated for those stupid awards. Yeah, I mean to think about this when I I stumbled on the archive, and then. My exposure for a long time to the fandom was because I was really just got really enamored with these crossovers. And there weren't many for a long time with these crossovers with Stargate SG-1. And Mm. some people were so enamored with the idea of crossing that they developed a whole Yahoo group uh, just... And it was called, I think, SG-1 to Cascade. I think is what it was called. And um, it was just four crossovers between the Sentinel... And, um, and and that was like my first exposure to the Sentinel fandom on um, Yahoo. And then it was much, much further out that I got exposed to it in the live journal community. And so there was never any exposure to the fandom as such. There was exposure to fanfic, but there was an exposure to the fandom as such until I had gotten into that yahoo group and it was actually a very well-run very polite yahoo group and this is one of the things interesting about yahoo groups was that your experience of fandom culture shifted dramatically from group to group because some were so toxic you could barely stand to be in them for five minutes and some of them were just like this is the most pleasant experience i've had in fandom and um yeah i seem to recall the the sg1 to cascade was had very clear-cut rules about what needed to be done and you know it was basically there for just posting story content it wasn't there really to talk about fandom and so it was it was it was a pretty straightforward thing and then the thing is is you start following these breadcrumbs and eventually you wind up in a toxic space and there's this weird thing is sometimes it can be very difficult to back out of a toxic space or get out of a toxic space and uh and that it took me a long time to make the connection that all the toxic places I'd ever been in fandom were siloed spaces. They were either focused on a single fandom or on a single pairing or something like that. And um, that's why I stopped. The more siloed the fandom, the worse it is. Like the, the more narrow the focus of a group is, the worse it is. Typically. Yeah. Although I would say, I would say that. Like I have, I was on quite a few 911 servers, and um, one of only one of them, the one that I would say to me was the, um, 
at the time was the least toxic was the most narrowly focused, which was it was it was down to a single ship. Um, but that comes down to the commitment of the people running it to keep it. Um, but it would be very easy with the culture of that fandom for toxic bullshit to creep in. So, um, you know, there's it's... lots of room for ugly in the, in, in that fandom because, you know, um, I mean, there's just, there's lots of room for ugly, unfortunately. And, and ugly is, is happening across the board, both in 911 and in 911 Lone Star. I don't even want to talk to you assholes about 911 Lone Star. But I want to tell you right fucking now, having a problem with who that man married, dude, y'all need to sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. Are you fucking serious? That's all I'm going to say. No, I got to say more. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> What an actor does, what an actor does, is not, in any fashion, is not the show queer baiting. An actor's personal life, the, this inability of fandom to separate the actor from the character has reached next level bullshit. When a man who has come out and said that he, the, he, the actor, is bisexual... And then he gets involved and marries a woman. The show has not been queer baiting you. Have you lost your mind? Other fucking dude. Because on the show he's still gay. But the actor, the actor, we've we've seen this before though. Not to not in this particular brand, but fans threatened Benedict Cumberbatch's wife. Sherlock fans threatened his wife because he got married. Yeah, they don't like it when single single celebrities get married sometimes. But I mean, but the thing is, the accusation of queer baiting the show is queer baiting them is just so utterly bizarre. He's he's an he's an actor. It is not he's not that character. I I mean, were they shipping the actors too? Oh, probably. Because that's I, ridiculous. I, I, I don't even want to know. I don't follow any of. I don't follow RPF in in any fandom whatsoever. So, um, but I would assume so. And the, the, I think the actors are friends. They spend, you know, so they sometimes post like IG pictures of them hanging out and stuff. But that should not. But even if, but but that has nothing to do with the show. No, it doesn't. And I don't. I don't understand how you get there, dudes. Judettes, I don't know how you get there where suddenly the actor's relationship is somehow interfering with the his character's fictional relationship. I I'm fucking y'all need Jesus. I'm, I I say that in all seriousness. Some of you need the confinement of religion to behave and it you need Jesus. I don't need Jesus because I don't need the threat of going to hell to not be an asshole. But you do. There, I said it. You're going to hell. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Actual I mean, hell. That to me was the thing that I was like, the inability of people to separate actor from character, which is the accusation of queer baiting, is an inability. To me, it's an inability to, to separate. Because queer baiting is about what you do to, you know, lure... To lure in an audience with the promise of a gay storyline or a gay character or something like that, and then you don't deliver on it. You know, you you tease and then you don't do it because you want to lure in. What does that have to do with the actor? And even if even if a bisexual 
man decided came out and he turned said that you know he's reevaluated and decided he was straight it's still not queer baiting because he's still not the character and his I mean, character what is fans are so crazy didn't they tell ruby rose she wasn't gay enough to be batwoman i don't know which is crazy i mean what because she said she was bi before but yeah, Dark, I also agree with what you're what you're saying there is that there is an element in what they're saying that is kind of bi erasure, um, which is also ugly as fuck. So mm-hmm. um, you know. So that's that's a whole other but it just it just I mean the thing is when we do see legitimate queer baiting and but the thing is like every time we see two um I do think that the nine one one show is getting starting to flirt with queer baiting. I don't think they've been there yet, but I do think they're kind of starting to flirt with it a little bit because they're very aware of the audience's perception of this relationship and they play play into the audience's uh, enjoyment of that. And And I'm not saying that I want them separating them or whatever, but the whole representing the whole audience um I think they're, I mean, they, they're doing it kind of tongue in cheek, like we're going to represent the audience, that have the audience be the voice, that elf being, the, the, like the showrunner really said that elf was the voice of the audience. And that fountain um, going off in the background behind Buck and Eddie once was also another case of um, voice of the audience kind of thing. That's Which kind is, of. Okay. I, I see the fan service there. Um, but also. I would like to point out that two men having an intimate and rewarding and emotionally rewarding friendship isn't queer baiting. I completely agree, but I, uh, but I think they have to be careful with the fan service because it can start to feel like queer baiting. Yeah, now Teen Wolf queer baited. Yes, Teen Wolf I think is an example of a show that absolutely full Went on queer all baited. in on fucking queer baiting. Yeah, um, they. Um, and they did it on multiple fronts because they teased a storyline about Styles being bisexual and then went, went nowhere with it. Um, and then and then they had the whole, you know, actually playing up, you know, thing about the, the awards that MTV put on where they actually, the fandom awards, where they put in Derek and Styles as uh, the favorite couple. And they had Derek and they had, uh, the, the, they had uh, Dylan O'Brien and Tyler Hecklin doing a lot of, promo stuff together to try to entice fan energy about them about and they were talking about staring at this and, t- and that this was the studio doing this and when the fans basically told them to put up or shut up all of a sudden they weren't even allowed basically on screen together um yeah in a boat <laughs> they did this on a boat <laughs> yeah um, i've seen those boat pictures they're really pretty <laughs> those yeah. are some really pretty pictures <laughs> They're obviously very comfortable with each other. They have great chemistry. Um, but I would say that sometimes, sometimes people see queer baiting when there is none. Where you see two um, actors just enjoying a really, you know, rewarding and intimate friendship. And fans have got their slash goggles on. Um, which is fine. I wear slash goggles like a, like a motherfucker. I do. But I also acknowledge that at no point ever in Stargate SG, um, Atlantis did I ever think for a moment that John and Rodney were actually going to get it on. 
Not even when Rodney lived in holographic form for 10 million years so he could save John. <laughs> Did I think I was actually going to get a relationship out of it? Yeah. Was I it the biggest gesture of I fucking love you that's ever been put in a science fiction TV show? Yes. Yes, it was. I think that obviously the show... Um... 911 has no issue whatsoever with having gay relationships. So I think that the reasons why they wouldn't go there with Buck and Eddie are, are other. Um, I have my theories. I don't want to get into the why about why they wouldn't. I think if they do it, if they do it, there'll be one of two scenarios. They'll do it just to break them up and ruin their friendship, which I hope they wouldn't. So they'll ruin it for us. Or they'll do it on the series finale. And I do mean the last episode. They'll have them get together on the very last episode of the show. Um, so I was talk we were talking about it before, and I told people in our specific chat for that show that they don't want Eddie and Buck to get together because they'll ruin it, and they'll ruin it probably by having Buck cheat. Possibly, but. I mean, I, if they did it, if they did it on literally on everybody on their everybody's on their way out the door, I actually be fine with that. But I would I would rather that I'd rather them do it as a nod to the fans on the way out the door, which is kind of what they've been doing this kind of fan service nod all along, than write it badly. I'd rather the nod on I'd rather nothing or a nod on the way out the door than them not do it. Clearly, they, some people talk about their you know at you know the show is two chicken shit to write a gay pairing. That is obviously not the case with this. No, this it's friend. not the case. That's not the case with this franchise. There are other reasons. There are other things going on. There are other things at play that, that we don't have insight to. We can only speculate on it. And I don't want to really get into it, but um, I think, I think that I don't want to see them fuck up the characters and I don't want to see them write the relationship badly. So either I'd rather them not do it and let them stay really good friends and have a deep, intimate, platonic relationship or just let let it let it be on that last episode of when they finally cancel the show or let it get together they could hire one of us to write their relationship <laughs> well but you my <laughs> yeah it's, it's, there's, there's, there's some trust there <laughs> well but i you know I'm, we've I talked about i think else. i think i think one of the reasons why that they uh i do think one of the reasons why that, that it i think it's likely that one of the actors has refused. Mm, yeah. I, I think that that's likely one of the big, and big issues. Honestly, if that's the case, that is perfectly okay because they neither one of them came into the role with the assumption that they would be doing that. Now, when it comes to the other pairing on Lone Star 911 Lone Star, both of those actors went into the script, into the show, signed up for it, took the job, in, on the understanding that they were going to be getting it on with another dude on TV. Well, I think that anytime there's going to be a, an expectation of romantic um, and, you know, romantic storyline on screen, that that's something that the actor deserves to know about ahead of time. And that it shouldn't be a, a, an expectation that they should just be okay with it one way or the other, regardless. Because and I, mean, I am 100% certain that Angela Bassett was, her relationship, her character's relationship with with Bobby Nash was cleared with her before it was put on. Like, Hey, are you okay with this? Is, is this something you're cool with? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, because I had, I mean, believe me, this is a, I had, I had a, um, an uncle who was in, in a, he, I had, he's still my uncle. My uncle, he was an actor for a while and he was on a show. I will not say what show or what type of genre, but he was on a show. And, um, 
they introduced a romantic storyline for him, and that kind of content was not in his contract. And they wanted to bring in that he would, this would be, it would add, you know, they wanted it added to his contract that it would be this amount, this, this kind of thing would be what would happen. This would be the expectation. It'd be this amount of, you know, kissing or whatever would basically be happening on screen, da, 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 da. And um, ultimately, when he had the discussion with his wife about that change in the direction for his career, they discussed it and decided that wasn't what they wanted to, to bring into the into the that tension into their relationship and so he turned it down and ultimately he was written off the show as a result so um but that was his decision and his choice to make um but it did affect his 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 his, his career on the show was he was he was eventually written out because he re- refused a romantic plot line but that wasn't in his initial contract so because I think that does have play, you know, because they are asking these two actors to engage in a form of kissing another person. And I personally don't even like to hug anybody else but my own husband. I mean, I'm just going to be put it, I'm gonna put it out there. Some people don't, don't want that kind of physical contact with other people. And they have a right to say no to that. And, or they don't want to kiss anybody else but, but their spouse. Yeah, and that's a line. Some people find kissing very intimate. Yeah, and when it comes to actors, that can have a a negative impact on the roles you have and or the the trajectory of your career. And I mean, I don't know that I I haven't put a whole ton of thought into how I feel about that, but I know that just my ex- one one piece of experience with this one family member was that you know it it did change the I mean, he he acted in other things after that but nothing where he was in a, any kind of romantic role but he was off that as a series regular on this one show because he refused the romantic plot line um, and it could be that anytime you refuse a, an addition to your contract that he would have been in the same boat I don't know I, I don't have any insight into how those kinds of things work um I will also say it is perfectly reasonable for an actor to say, no, I, I'm not going to do this on screen. Um, I'll take off my shirt, but not my pants. Right. I shouldn't have to, you know, um, I mean that actor in Outland, um, Outlander, um, Sam Hugan, Hugan, I don't know. I'm not sure. They, that, the editorial staff put a full frontal nudity image scene in the, against his without his permission yeah that 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 was a very difficult i read the interview it was very difficult to read because um it basically a deep betrayal of somebody's trust and basically the way the scene was even shot was a betrayal of his trust so it uh um and it taught it speaks to when he moved into the you know into the producer role the directing role um that he put a lot of um, care into having safety people on hand for the actors and stuff so they would feel represented and taken care of on screen, on, on, on the set because he felt so unsafe. Um, and that's just, you know, it's, uh, you, I find that if, you know, if you can deal with the how potentially triggery that content um, is, I, it's definitely an, an interview worth reading. It was, it's, it's rough what they put him through. Um, I I didn't want to read it because I I've actually not been able to watch Outlander and I've never read the books because it's there it is rife with consent issues let's just put it that way and um n- not a single character is spared 
this apparently. And I just, I don't, I don't have the resources for that. But for the production to violate the star of their show says something about the culture around that show and how it was being produced and directed. Because if even he, the lead, wasn't safe, then who was on that set? And probably wasn't really safe to say anything about it at the time. He had to gain more star power and go off and have more clout to be able to then introduce better safety for people. And that's really unfortunate. It speaks to that kind of toxic culture in Hollywood. Um, so again, I don't know with this scenario with a family member, my family member, if it would, I, I personally think that if they had been at, if he had been asked to change to allow things into his contract for, for the advancement of the storyline, anything, even if it hadn't been a romantic storyline, um, and he had declined it, I think that it would have not worked out in his favor in, in Hollywood of that time period. I think it just wasn't something that was tolerated well, was saying no. Um, but there is a mentality about actors and actresses of you're an actor, that's your job. Literally, I've seen comments like this on Twitter. You're an actor. Suck it up. Um, and yet, you know, I think it's one of those things that people have a right to know what they're agreeing and what they're agreeing to act out before they get out to act it. Yeah. Uh, there was an actress once talking about doing a sex scene uh, on a movie set and how suddenly um, that particular scene required ten times more people than any other scene that she that she'd been in in the whole damn movie, because suddenly practically everybody had to be on set to see her mostly naked. Okay, <laughs> but that little girl play that not little girl that grown woman who was playing the girl with the long white hair in Lord of the and uh, not Lord of the Rings, uh, Game of Thrones, and she was with Jason Momoa on screen. Mm -hmm. She mm -hmm. said that before they had those sex scenes that were not as they should. I don't, want to, I don't want to actually say it, but she said every time he would get rough with her on set or he would have to pretend to be rough with her on set, he'd apologize first. <laughs> Which is kind of sweet. <laughs> we're probably something really awful to each other. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, a, a lot of times those things are and, and the funny thing is there's how these things play out because like sometimes these things are so rehearsed um, in advance that you know so so rehearsed so frequently that they see sometimes it ceases to have any meaning and other times they don't want to rehearse it over and over and over again because they don't want to put the actors through the trauma of doing it repeatedly so I think it all depends upon but I read an interview with an actor and I'm going to try to avoid being super specific here um, this was years ago about how, you know, his experience with doing sex scenes had always been, it was handled very carefully. And, you know, the men always had their, you know, as much was, as much as could be covered up of the, of the, you know, this, this, the body of sex, the sexual parts, the, the, the genitals. Um, yeah, the bits and bobs, all the dangly bits, everything that could, you know, sock cocks, the whole thing, cock, sock cocks, cock socks, reverse that. Um, <laughs> Everything, everything that could be covered up was, you know, they, 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 you know, women would, you know, literally the, like you'd have women would sometimes have things glued, like literally glued in place. Like they would use that body glue to put 
um, silicon shields in place over um, like women's um, vulvas so that the hip could be side of the hip could be bare, not have panty lines and stuff. While while at the same time, so give the illusion of nudity while giving the actors um, some element of of attempt at modesty. Anyway, so this was he talked about how this had been his experience and what his expectation was and that they would not you know that when he had done you know sex scenes if there was going to be the shirt was going to be off that they would not take the shirt off until they got into bed and and that that they'd get a robe as soon as they got out of bed for the for the actress for the for the women and so he said they're preparing for this sex scene and and that they were working and they hadn't done any kind of like blocking out on on the set or anything yet and that the actress who was coming into the set she just shows up like he's like I guess he was like sitting on the bed or something and just takes all of her clothes off she's stark staring naked pulls his robe off climbs off climbs off on top of him and says let's do this and he said she was completely naked there was no attempt to to no even an illusion that she was and he said it had not been discussed with him that she was naked and and that it had always been kind of like a, a little bit scarring for him because it had taken the professionalism this attempt at removing sex from the equation he said usually his experience of these scenes was that they were so scripted that they weren't actually sexy for for them to and that she was very critical of him not being quote into it and um Wait, she criticized him for not having an erection during a fake sex scene? No, like the kissing, like she wanted, yeah, oh. that she wanted, he, she oh. started kissing him and like he wasn't really into it and it, 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 he wasn't, he wasn't giving her anything to work with and he was like, he was put off by the whole thing because she was just going at it like this was really happening and it, he said for him, she had like taken away, ripped away this this barrier that there had always been this level of what the thin veil of professionalism around sex scenes that separated them from the real and the fake and she just shredded it and he didn't feel like he could say anything because it was a woman who who had done it right and and, and it, so he, gross. and it was just like it, it was a comfortable reading it. And I hadn't considered, you know, it, it is these tiny, when, when it comes to these kinds of scenes, that it is these, it really matters, the little tiny details, um, how it's handled by the crew, how it's handled, you know, do they give them as much modesty as they can? Do they cover them up as quickly as they can? Are there sensitivity people on set to make sure that there aren't any more people there that need to be, that the actors and that the actors are as comfortable as they can be um, with the situation that's happening, that there aren't unnecessary takes, that they aren't, that the act, that the director isn't being a perfectionist, you know, twerp and taking, you know, reshooting um, a violent scene for no reason, just, for some, you know, arbitrary bit of aesthetics, you know, and, and it's like, you, you don't think when you're watching it that, that there are these, that these little things add up and matter. And when someone comes in and just shreds that and just rips those things away, that it matters. It makes a big difference. Um, I mean, honestly, when some, in that position, when she was not wearing anything between her and him, there was no barrier over her genitals she some people would consider her putting her i'm sorry she put her pussy on his body that's a sex act to some people 
It would be to me. It would be to me. When someone puts their genitals on me, that is that is a sex act that I, if I don't agree with, you're going to feel it. And not in a good way. Because there are very few instances where I'll come up swinging. That's one of them. I mean, if the actor and actress discuss I'm horrified. it, or, or the, or the, or the, <laughs> you know, well, I'll just use actor as a as a gender neutral. If the two actors agree to it up front, they talk about it and they agree how that's how it's going to go up front, and and the levels of nudity to which they, or the level of coverage to which they want, that's one thing. But if it hasn't been discussed, and 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 that, and and you're in a culture where you feel like you can't say something on either side, because really neither side in that scenario, neither side neither side being at, at that time period which i want to say this was in the 90s was going to be able to say anything right so um i think most simulated sex scenes in movies aren't sexy they aren't no. viewed as sexy they aren't looked as sexy on the set it's work it's aggravating um i think it's not treated as porn Hopefully, um, I would like to say that as, as a crew member who doesn't want to be on on set for a sex scene, I would like to. I, I certainly would like to, to idealistically be in a world where that could be accommodated. But um, I, I think do... if you agree to work on a movie with with the content and you know what the content's going to be, that you have to be prepared to work with the content, whether it's violent content or yeah, gore or sex. Um, I mean. It's not, it's, you know what you're signing up for. Yeah, because at some point, if you're, and it can also be very with a lot. It, it can also make it difficult. I think if, like, if people don't want to be on the scene, you know, for for violent content, that's not anymore. Because um, I personally it, would not want to be on the set to watch a simulated murder. Oh yeah, I wouldn't either. Um, um, it would rate higher for me of things I do not want to see than a sex scene. Um, and I'm not someone who actually enjoys that kind of thing. Visual porn really doesn't do jack shit for me. Um, oddly, auditory. The sounds are more stimulating than the visual. I'm not sure if that's a woman thing or just a, a me thing. Yeah. I prefer to read erotica than, 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 than watch or listen. But listen is more interesting. Maybe I mean, it gives it, me imagination. It, it, there comes a point, I think, when you, when when people are uh, staffing for a movie, um, they if they're disclosing what kind of movie they're staffing for, um, that everybody you if, if the, you know everybody ha- is on board with the content and giving people exceptions to, it would it would have to be really outside the norm to give people exceptions to be to exempt themselves from being on set when they're supposed to be on set. Otherwise, you could get into a situation where you how do they staff a scene if they don't ever know who's going to ask to be exempted from being on set at any given moment? And they, they can't get a, a film shot if they don't know who's going to not want to be on set at that particular moment. And if, they, if you have an ongoing problem, like if you have that disorder where you faint the side of blood, obviously you would not want to want to work on any procedurals or horror movies where simulated blood might show up. Yeah, I mean, because why would you w- have the same response to simulated blood as you would regular blood? Probably because it would look the same. Right. Well, if I was, you know, I have clown phobia, and um, you know, if Obviously, I were, she's not available to work on the next it movie. No, I'm not, and and I, <laughs> and, 
and and so if if I were a grip or or um, uh, doing costuming or whatever, and, and there's a lot of people who don't have to be on set, you know, but like people, a lot of times people who do makeup or hair or sometimes costume work or whatever, they do need to be close by um, and be prepared to be on set. And so I would not, if, if I were, if there's going to be an it movie, I would not want to, I would a bit new, new. So I mean I think it's one of those things where, but also if I had an if I were not wanting to be um, if I were an actor, and I were not wanting to have um, intimate contact with somebody, I would not of course sign a contract to be in a movie that required that. If they tried to change the scope, then I would, I would I would probably if I if I knew that was a limitation of mine, I would be sure it was explicitly excluded. If they tried to you know. Um, change the scope of my contract after the contracts were signed to include that kind of thing, well, they'd be paying out my contract and I would be off the movie. So, you know, it's really important to, you know, advocate for yourself well. I think that's true across the board, whether, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing, wherever you're working, whatever, whatever environment you're in, having your, um, having boundaries and um, policing those boundaries is important and having a boundary for yourself is not a punishment for somebody else. Yeah, um, and, and I, think... I have had readers tell me that my policy regarding um, so-called concrete or constructive criticism is a punishment. Well, no, it's just my boundary. And but some people are very invested in their opinion, and we talked before about how that's the only thing they have to contribute to fandom is their opinion. There are plenty of places you can contribute it to. It just isn't going to be my space. But some people get wrapped around the axle about that. They really do. Um, and it's weird. Lady Hilda just sent me candy corn. <laughs> It is your favorite thing, as bizarre as that is. It is my favorite <laughs> Halloween candy. I accept no judgment. <laughs> it's sugar and wax. You, you have no choice but to accept the judgment. <laughs> and this is candy corn marshmallows, which means it is not even candy corn. That is not proper candy corn. That is just... <laughs> It's a candy corn marshmallow, which is just that is yeah that that's peep level atrocity. It's something. I mean, I don't know what you I don't know what you would do with a candy corn marshmallow. Does I don't, it taste The question is does it taste like candy corn? Well, candy corn just tastes like sugar and wax, so I hope not. It doesn't taste like wax. What kind of candy corn have you been eating? I've had candy corn since I was, I mean, it's probably, it's probably been 40 years since I've had candy corn because I think I had it once as a kid, obviously in my Halloween candy, and was vehemently opposed to it and never ate it again. I could just say you've had crappy candy corn because it should taste kind of <laughs> like honey. Um, uh, but that's anyway. That's not my memory. Yeah, Susan, it hasn't been long enough. <laughs> It's been at least 40 years since I've had of candy the, corn. Of the, of the Cal... Ca, ca, candy that's explicitly Halloween candy. It is my favorite. Uh, um, Explicit Halloween candy. 
I don't like any explicit Halloween candy. I don't like those little peanut things wrapped in the brown paper. No. Whatever they're called. I don't like those. Um, I don't like candy corn. I do like Reese Cups pumpkins, but they're not explicitly Halloween candy. That's just you can that's get just Reese's that's around. Yeah, that's just a Halloween shape. A Halloween shape of a conventional candy is not. Uh, um, what are the other explicit Halloween candies? Um, well, there's those ones that are the. Um, I want to say I don't even know really what they are, but they used to be in um, the red and black. That red and uh, not red, orange and black wax paper. There were some sort of like nougaty kind of things. Do you remember those? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. That I thought it was kind of like a peanut, like a shaped like a peanut. It's brown. Was it? Was it shaped I don't like, like a that peanut? either. I didn't really care for those. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did grow up. I do like um, Smarties, but I, I, I admit, I, I don't think that they're necessarily explicitly a Halloween candy, but I think of them as a Halloween candy because when the fuck else do you see them coming out Susan to play? Susan thinks those things are Halloween? called peanut butter kisses. Peanut butter kisses? Yeah, I think a lot of people think, I do like, I do like Rocket slash Smarties. Um, we do call them Smarties here in the U.S. I do like them. Um, but I like candy corn better. Um, Canadian Smarties are the bomb. They are the better M&M. Um, I like Tootsie Rolls, but I don't think Tootsie Rolls are necessarily a specific Halloween. Yeah, yeah. that's it. I hate them. <laughs> I hate those things. The peanut butter kisses. I, they're just as bad as candy corn, honestly. Yeah, yeah, those... Oh, I, I think those peanut butter... The, yeah, those, those things are awful. Um... I also do, t- I guess I do think of Tootsie, I mean, there's a lot of things you can get year-round. You can get candy corn year-round, too, but I do think it was a Halloween candy. One um, of my favorite things to get at Christmas was my mom would get me a long bar of Tootsie Roll. I could cut it up and have a little piece of Tootsie Roll every day for like a month, because it was huge. Last Christmas, though. And also, my I don't think... Christmas candy is is got to be peppermint candy. I, I, I also... love peppermint stick. I also don't think that this is strictly a um, um, Halloween candy, um, but I think of it also as a Halloween candy, is, um, um, oh God, my brain is blanking on it, um, Circus Peanuts. Um, no, I don't like them either. I, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like Halloween candies that are just, it's a lot of weird, like straight sugar strangeness. Um, there's also those <laughs> yeah, little, sugar strangeness is a good term. <laughs> there's also those little, those little chewy, weird little chewy ghost shaped things. I don't know what those are called. I know what you mean. I don't know either. And also there's some stuff that again, there there's nothing, there's nothing remotely Halloween about them. But the only time I ever got them was at Halloween and like those strawberry delights. I only ever got those at Halloween. So to me, they're a fucking because Halloween that candy. People buy that big giant ass candy bag full of crap and dump it in your trick or treat bag. And also, um, there are. Um, I'm gonna have to look up gummy booze. That might be what they're called, but I don't think so. Um, there I are don't like anything gummy. There are no. It is not. There it is not gummy booze, but it was it was um the texture of them was a little bit weird, but there was also the um there is a a a, a peep ghost. The only marshmallow I like is covered in dark chocolate. I will take it in the shape of a snowman, or a reindeer. I'm not picky. 
I like peppermint can candy, like the peppermint sticks, the soft or the hard. Don't put peppermint in my chocolate. I, I don't understand why you would put peppermint in chocolate or orange in chocolate. I think the worst possible thing I ever got as a gift was somebody gave me a chocolate orange. I thought it was just chocolate. I did not realize that it was an orange flavored chocolate. And it was so epically disappointing that I don't even want to talk about it even today. It's been decades. It's been like at least 20 years. Okay, so apparently there are a whole bunch of things that I did not realize that only came around for <laughs> Halloween. I just finally Googled it, and I wish I didn't know that some of these things existed. Although I am being reminded here of um, some things. Um, like, do you remember the um, like the jawbreakers that look like eyeballs? Yes. They'd be painted like eyeballs. I'm remembering those. But apparently, let me get back up here to the top about things that I wish I didn't know. Um, now, I love a good caramel apple. I'm not going to lie, but I'm not allowed to have that anymore, obviously. Um, but that's that's delicious. I forgot that they used to sell popcorn balls, like, wrapped up in the candy aisle. I for completely I do remember that from when I was younger. But here's something I did not know existed was caramel apple Milky Way, which is apparently only sold at Halloween. Um I've never seen one. I haven't either. I might even buy it if I had. And this actually Just makes me feel curiosity. slightly nauseated, but Hershey's candy corn white chocolate. No. I yay yay. That's just a that's just a big old no for me. Um the Frankfurt no. gummy, the Frankfurt gummy body parts. <laughs> no. <laughs> like you said, gummy anything. Thank you. No. Um, My sister used to freaking love. Um, uh, sorry, my computer just tried to reset on me, uh, or restart. Fucking Windows updates. Um, what was I saying? Oh, my sister fucking loved those gummy worms. They would, the the worm itself would be sour, and it would ha it would be covered in sugar. Oh, it is the nastiest thing I've ever put in my mouth. <sighs> Bar none. <laughs> Take that any way you like. It's the nastiest thing I ever had in my mouth. <sighs> and apparently there's something called gummy boo-boos, which is a gummy band-aid with a scab on it. Look at all these weird assholes who like sour worms. I, what's wrong with y'all? <laughs> who hurt you? I just can't. Anyway, yeah, so of the of the Halloween candies, um, candy corn is, but I don't, I, apparently it's not a very competitive field. <laughs> <laughs> Little kids and uncomplicated palates is not really a surprise. But I'm going to go on record and say that I think a York peppermint patty, patty could be a crime against nature. Oh, yeah, yeah. They apparently make a Halloween version of the York peppermint patty, too. So Whatever. I'm just... I'm just gonna. <laughs> Gross. No, the worst gum is the gum that used to come in the can, and it would be a a big circle of it, and you would tear it off. That was the no. The worst gum was the one that it to me would mimic uh, chewing tobacco. The shreds. It would uh, get every pretty bad. And you get every it would get everywhere. Big league, big league chew, I think, is what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. The tape gum was awful, but the worst tasting gum 
was the gum you got in the middle of your sucker. The one you got in the middle of your um, Tootsie Pop? It, no, not the Tootsie Pop. They had, they had another one that had gum in the middle. Blow, the Blow Pop. The Blow gum. Pop. The, the Blow, blow pop. pop. That's the worst tasting chewing gum ever. I love the center of a Tootsie Pop. <laughs> so I have a story for you, Asteropi, about bazooka gum, because you brought up bazooka. So um, for years, I had my tongue pierced. For years. Of course oh, I did. No. <laughs> and um, I had... She was a professional. <laughs> I was a professional. I had... I would chew... I had chewed sugar-free gum for years. I mean, you, I mean, you always be careful when you're chewing with a tongue piercing, but I chewed sugar-free gum for years and never had a problem with my tongue piercing. Apparently, that isn't the same case with bubble gum. So one day, my throat was really dry, and one of the things that can help with when your mouth is dry is to chew gum, because it, chewing simulates saliva production. Therefore, you have a less dry mouth. So... We all, they didn't have any gum I wanted that wasn't mint because, you know, mint allergy. And they had like a couple pieces of like that fucking bazooka gum up at the front for like five cents or whatever piece. And I grabbed a couple pieces of the bazooka and I gave the guy like 10 cents at 7-Eleven. Popped a couple pieces in my mouth. I start chewing. Next thing I know, <laughs> that gum is all wrapped around my tongue barbell. And it is stuck like the gum that it is. <laughs> It, it is not coming loose. <laughs> I'm like standing in the parking lot. Like I haven't even gotten my car yet. And I'm like, like frozen. Like I don't know what to do with myself. This is the worst 10 cents she's ever spent in her life. <laughs> <laughs> because my tongue barbell is now utterly entangled with bazooka chewing gum. <laughs> so... I had to stand in there in the parking lot with, like, I had to un unthread my tongue barbell and take it out. Because, I mean, what was I supposed to do, right? And take it out. I take my barbell out. And I've got, like, it's, like, stuck all stuck on in a big clump at one end of the, the tongue barbell. And, um, and then I go, you know, I'm like, now that I'm not all, like, you know, quite literally tongue-tied, Ellie, I... I go get my car, get a tissue, and tie the whole thing up. And yes, I did need ice and like deal with it later. I actually think I wound up throwing off, wearing away one end of that barbell and having to buy a replacement. But, I mean, it was just, I was, that is just not a position you want to be in. <laughs> all of a sudden, your tongue, your barbell is like all, and mind you, I didn't get to chew the gum long enough for my mouth not to be dry anymore. Edie, I'm going to go on record and tell you that I don't know of any fun kind of tongue bondage. I've seen some predicament bondage that is related to the tongue, but it didn't seem like it'd be very fun. <laughs> <coughs> no, I'm not seeing it either. I, in the end, at the end of the day, I want to enjoy my fandom experience as long as I get to have my fandom experience. Um, and, I've come to see, the older I get, the more I see other people's expectations of me as toxic. I don't really appreciate anybody having expectations of me. Beyond, like, you know, just human decency. You expect me not to kill people. I get it. <laughs> I'm fine with that expectation. You know, the normal stuff. But sometimes the fandom puts these expectations on you um 
especially, and this is not me bragging. I don't want to come off as a braggart. Um, but when you're popular in a fandom and you put out a huge work, people have these expectations of you. Um, and sometimes they pile on and they feel really unreasonable. Like when I posted only time, I sat there with those four posts ready to post for two hours before I hit publish. Um, and I kind of regretted uh, getting them ready before the 31st because I had all this weird anxiety around them. And maybe it's because it was the Harry Potter fandom and I haven't had a really good experience with Harry Potter fandom in the last couple of years. Um, but also there is this thing and it happened pretty much as soon as somebody finished reading it is I can't wait for the next part. Oh, it was phrased worse than that. I'm just going to throw it out there. I can't wait for the next part. I would expect the way it was phrased to you was was really obnoxious as fuck. I'm just. I mean, it's on my website probably. I I haven't deleted any comments from my, from um uh, only time, so it's it, it it's pretty close to one of the first ones I got was a this giant expectation of what they expected to see next. Uh, I was talking about the really short thing about just nothing but the expectation of book four. Nothing about what they were that they enjoyed book three, just their assertion about they were waiting for book four. Well, the very first comment I got told me that my author note was the best part. Out of 122K, the okay. best part was my author note. I mean, like, you do write some entertaining author notes, but it wasn't the best part. I, I wasn't even in my top 100 parts. I'm sorry, Kira, but it was good, but it wasn't that good. I mean, my author note was on point. But no, I mean, I mean, I knew immediately, I knew that when, I mean, it was a big work, so it was going to take some time for people to actually finish reading it, but I did know that I would get bombarded with people um, asking about the next part. Um, you know, where is book four? When can we expect book four? Motherfucker, you can expect book four when, don't expect shit from me. <laughs> But, and the emails, I mean, I've gotten a bunch of emails about Only Time, people being really generous with their, with their praise, and, um, but also I've gotten some really demanding what's going to happen next. This felt unfinished. There's so much left for you to do on this series. I hope you're not going to abandon it. Well, comments like that never get you to write, do they? <laughs> I mean, this thing is... I'm going to tell you guys a secret, apparently, from these some of these people who are sending me these emails. Voldemort is not going to make it. <laughs> what? That's between you and me. Tom Riddle going to die. <laughs> I mean, what? I just, I don't even want to think about the kind of letters that J.K. Rowling got. Because it took her seven fucking books to kill him. I mean, just saying. Just saying. Um, I, it's, but yeah, I mean, the expectations that fandom puts on a writer who has some moderate pop popularity in, um, in a fandom is, is unreasonable. I mean, it is profoundly unreasonable. Um. I think that I am more popular in Stargate than I am in Harry Potter. I don't know for that. I can't say that for certain. I don't have any kind of metric to determine that. But um, 
because I do get a lot of feedback on my Harry Potter works. I get more hits on my Stargate work. Um, but there is this expectation when you put out something. And I don't think it is rude of me to say that I am a talented writer. I remember being told when I was very young to be humble and modest. Um, it is either humble nor modest to say that I am a very good writer. And I understand that good writers in fandom aren't growing on trees. And I get it. When you find someone that really that their style really engages you, you really like their narrative, you want more, 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 um, that it's difficult to wait and to treat that person on the other end of your newfound obsession like a human being. Unfortunately, some asshole, I don't know who they are. If it was you, I don't really mean to call you an asshole. You're kind of an asshole. I mean it with all due affection. Recommended me somewhere. And I keep getting bombarded with new fans in Harry Potter. But I'm not mad. Yeah, I can always tell when I hit a reckless because, like, some story will, like, suddenly get, like, one story will suddenly get a spike of readership that I can't account for. Like, it, in the sense that it's, like, older or something. And then that will usually start to trickle out to people will start reading, like, other stuff in that fandom. There'll be, like, a surge in readership in, in that fandom. And then pe somebody else will, and then that same, per one or two of those people will stick around to read other works. And, like, and then there's, like, one diehard who will be reading everything on my site. And I know because they're clicking on the like button. Liking. <laughs> I actually had this reader contact me to tell me that they were going to, that somehow um, they had never liked all my posts on my site and they were going to do that, but they didn't want it to look weird. Uh, it's going to look weird regardless. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind if people wreck my stuff. I actually find someone wrecking my stuff is flattering. And actually, so, there have been a couple times when like somebody has, I'll, I'll just be honest, like somebody has said, I'm looking for a story that meets... Um, this criteria that and it was like it was like a dead on like there was something I had written that was like so on the nose for what this person was looking for and like nobody mentioned my story and like one time I just flat out said well my story fits this ass pretty much pretty much on every every aspect i'm like oh thank you I look forward to reading it and someone replies and says oh I just assumed they'd read it why would you assume that yeah, don't, don't it, assume it, somebody's it, read. I don't mind being wrecked. I really appreciate it when someone likes my work so much that they wreck it. I, I recommend it. I really do. Um, when I have engaged someone to the point where they get on Tumblr or Reddit or Discord and say, Hey, you need to go read this fucking story because it was amazing. I appreciate that. I do. I'm, I'm not even being an asshole about it. I do. But... There is an element in Harry Potter that I wish would leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. I, I think and not get my stuff dirty because they're demanding and they're rude and they're entitled. And they could come over here and read two million words of Harry Potter. I personally think very good fucking Harry Potter fiction and then get bent with me because they don't have more to read. Y'all can't see me, but I'm double burning. Yeah. I'm double burning too um by the way the comment that got me so bent was the i await the fourth book nothing about what was read just i yeah, await the fourth yeah book. that was it i await the fourth book that was the entire total comment 
Well, there was it's white the I fourth book with bated breath. I think it was a sum total, but that was it. That was that was the sum total of the comment. <laughs> I was like, it Kira shared that, and I was like, I mean, I I it was like I think I saw red more than more than she did. I, it was I like mean, there comes a point like where my you just brain get, like, exploded. What's that word? Inured. You just get yeah, is in, that yeah. how you say it? Inured. Yeah, inured. Yeah. Inured. You just get inured to it, and it's just like fuck you. You know, and you move on. Click. Okay, fine. Fuck you. But Whatever. I mean, that comment actually made me laugh out loud because I was just like, I hope you suffocate. <laughs> I don't mean that literally. I re- I realize there is, and the thing is, I realize what people are are thinking is that they're giving you an implicit compliment because obviously they wouldn't be looking forward to what's next if they hadn't liked what they had read but it's just to me it's like super insulting when all somebody can tell me after reading any amount of words but anything novel length particularly is what more they want to see I'm looking forward to the next part nothing about what you just read but I'm looking forward to the next part. Never mind that this is the third book in the series. And that there's, you know, what, over 200k total bef- with everything before? Or is it close to, close to 200k, right? Between all three parts? Uh, 88 and 30 and then 122-ish. Oh, so it's, yes, yeah, well over. So it's like 230, 240k. Um, so you got 240k g- going on. And no, nothing, nothing but I wait the fourth. Oh, okay. Well, may the fourth be with you. <laughs> um, it's weird. I mean, there's some weirdness there, right? It's like, did you mean to be an asshole? I mean, do you have a license for that? Did you get some training or does that come naturally to you? <laughs> are you doing this because it's your job or are you doing it for free? I mean, I like I said, I don't mind being wrecked. I don't. I mean, I really appreciate it when someone likes my work so much that they, that they want their friends and other people who read their their site to read me. I that it's I'm honored. Honestly. If I was if I was trying to cultivate a tiny a tiny group of you know like inner inner group of people only who are only smaller people are allowed to read my stuff, I would have a members only site and only people I knew personally would be allowed to. Um, um, would 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 they'd all have passwords and, and accounts that I gave them, and only they would would know when I posted. I mean, nothing would be posted publicly if I was that determined to hide from fandom in some fashion. You know, and, well, the fact and is, is if I didn't want people to read me, I wouldn't put it online. Yeah, that I that enjoy it, being read. And there are stuff. There is stuff I I wouldn't put on Ryan online because and I would never put online because I don't I don't want it read, but. That's different. If I put it online, I'm putting it up there to be read, and I'm not trying to keep it secret from anybody. So, um, well, I hope but, your grandma enjoyed my work. <laughs> well, she said she unwrecked it <laughs> because oh, she, I guess it scared her. Oh. But I told you my pops read your your stories, so I was like, which I did not know. I w- I honestly, when you told me that, my cheeks, my face was so hot. I, I was I was like, oh my god, he read my porn. Julie's daddy read my porn. <laughs> I blushed. I blushed too. I was like, "What? What? Look what? <laughs> you did what now?" And if I, and it, it, my it mom just, was so proud of me being published that she told everybody. Um, she had her own box of copies of my my, my first book, um, and it was erotica. Um, and she, anybody, I mean, 
church lady, she didn't give a shit. She'd be like, my daughter wrote this, and it's in bookstores, but um, I have a few autographed copies. She's selling them for, because, you know, I have all these copies. I'm not going to give them away for free. I gave some away for free um, and sold the, the others for, like, 10 bucks a piece. And my mom was out there selling my erotica out of her, <laughs> her trunk like it was contraband. <laughs> she sold 100 copies of my book that way. That's hysterical. <laughs> I contacted my agent. I said, yeah, my mom sold all the author copies I got. <laughs> Did you want to cut? <laughs> and she laughed and she said, wait, your mom sold your erotica? I said, yeah, um, out of the back of her SUV. <laughs> I'm not even sure if I'm going to get a cut. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, that is, that is so sweet. Did she read it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, she read it. She read it. She's very proud. She's very proud. Her church group. She says her church group read it. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) My aunt's church group read it. (laughs) I said, I'm really lucky they didn't ask me to come to the church group and read a section out of it because they do that to local authors. But they took notes. (laughs) They took notes. (laughs) I I consider it that I have improved the sex life of, of... most of the people at church <laughs> at this point that's probably true think of all the marriages you saved no oh yeah 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 um but uh yeah yeah aunt holly roller read it she got she got signed copies of all my books in a bookcase in the in the front of her house behind glass i'm not even kidding she got them she, uh, she she's got her author signed copies in her um in her break front she likes to call it her break front <laughs> That's a that's a hoot. I was you know I was reading one of those um, not, another one of those fandom diatribes about how if you're going to post things online, you have to be prepared for people to blah 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 blah. Whether it's critique you or you know do whatever or you know, it just just it's you know, whatever the there's always something there's some litany some whatever follows the dot dot dot. You know people have their theories like if you post you have to be prepared for this to happen. Um, I will agree with that to a point. You have to be prepared for it to happen, yes, because it will happen. Do you have to tolerate it? No. Do you have to accept it in your space? No. Just because these people say that it is what is going to happen, true, observably true, they're going to do it whether you allow them to or not. They're going to, you know, you can't stop their assholery just because you tell them you don't want it. Um, it doesn't mean you have to allow it. So just because they're determined to do it doesn't mean you have to put up with it. And there's, there's, you know, there's a difference between those things. And they act, and so that then, then, then they'll try this gaslighting technique where they will act like you're fragile or you're the one who's the problem because you set a boundary. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, well you're so, someone tells you you're, aren't you being a little oversensitive? You're, you're so thin skinned. If, you're, if you just were a little tougher, you shouldn't be posting online if you can't handle critique. Didn't you know? You shouldn't be offering critique if you can't handle rejection. <clears throat> but if someone, I saw somebody call me sensitive. I said, yes, actually, I am a sensitive person. Um, I, I cry at sad commercials and Anya songs and I can't watch Hallmark movies because they make my nose bleed because I get so upset. Um, I said, sad songs make me cry. 
happy songs sometimes make me cry. I'm a sensitive person, but as sensitive as I am, it is no excuse for you to be a motherfucking jackhole. Because and my if, sensitivity doesn't excuse somebody else's assholery. It doesn't. Right. And even if I were so delicate that it's amazing <laughs> that I could function online, which is not true, by the way, um, but even if that were true, despite the fact that I call myself a delicate little snowflake, I, I actually am not. But assuming that were actually the case, that I could barely function in the, you know, in, in, in online for being so fragile, um, does that give them a pass on being an asshole? And ignoring my boundaries? Uh, I'm not sure you did, Astropy. I mean, I think that's one of those things of, like, um, if if by your meaning of the dance, meaning you took the meaning of the video to heart, um, because he went away with the video. Oh, well, okay, then. um, I think when it comes... I think when it comes you are to, a heifer for that, by the way. I know. I think when it comes to music, what you get out of it is what you get out of it. But I've always just inter- taken that song and what I meant it to mean was that um, it's about accepting the pain that comes with the good, the good and the bad. You know, that the pain, that life is going to hurt and that you have to look back at the good things and... Realize that sometimes you have the good things because you because it hurt, you know, and the the pain that came with it, and that it's worth it, and yeah, and that's and that's what, what I got out of it too. And I think that's what he's whenever I've heard that him sing that song that he's singing about, you know, if you would know ahead of time, sometimes people would do things to avoid those hurts, but then think of all the things that they would miss out on, um, and. And so, yeah, there's a, there, uh, there's a line in the fiction that tears my heart out once a year called freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose where Rodney, um, it's a story where Rodney's basically John's widow, um, or widower. Um, and he is at the, um, empty grave and he's talking to the headstone and he tells him that it was, that he'd be a nervous wreck if he hadn't always known that he'd grow old alone basically he's that he always knew that john wouldn't be there and um he never expected to have more than the moments that they had and it's clear he doesn't regret it yeah because i mean ed you're right the 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 thing that was that's big for me about that song is the not regretting um that's that's worth it you know the whatever however much it hurts it's worth it the beautiful experiences are worth and I wanted um, it to the audience to get that, you know, no matter what, like Buck would never regret a moment of his time and effort and love that he's put into his friendship with Eddie. So I think the dance at that point is very uh, sort of emblematic. It's not really the song that Buck associates with the two of them, but... Um, at, at that moment, it was very much on his mind for the two of, for, for, for where they were at and that he didn't regret as much heartbreak as they were going through at that time. And they were. And we all agree she could have made a, a more heartbreaking decision. <laughs> I, we could have, but I, 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 
It comes later, though. <laughs> it comes later. <laughs> I, I was not going to say it. I was not going to say it. But honestly, if that had been the one you picked, I probably would have ugly cried myself into, <laughs> into a headache. <laughs> the thing is, remember, it Eddie's... heavy enough as is. <laughs> Eddie's, play, Eddie's, Eddie's playlist is like a whole character in the story. And if you think that ca- that song is not on his playlist, you mistake mistaken. Yeah, it has to be on his playlist. Hey, he's from Texas. Of course it's on his playlist. <laughs> everything's on his place so like but uh, i have this big country ass playlist and um i have this kind of like this idea percolating in the back percolating in the back of my mind that um that i'd like to write like a country singer au (laughs) for 911 right yeah (laughs) um because christopher thinks that he can in the story christopher thinks that he can um figure out his dad by and one of the things he regrets is not one of the things Christopher's struggling with is his own regret about not talking to his father because of his own fears and he's he's afraid it's from things his 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 grandparents kind of instilled in him that he was he was afraid to that he would alienate his father or push his father away or that if he wanted too much or demanded too much um that his dad would leave like his mother did so there's a lot of things he never he never said to his father that he wanted to say, things he wanted to know. And so he feels like he just didn't know as much about his father. And he, now he's afraid he'll never get to know those things. So he thinks that he can, he can get to know his father. And so he feels like the person who knows his father the best is Buck. And so he thinks he can understand his father through dissecting his father's favorite music. And Buck, explain to me why this is Daddy's favorite song. And... um why is this on daddy's playlist you know well it must be his favorite song it's on there three times you know Buck's like i don't think that's what that means what you think it means but um so at one point there's like i have this plan for this like this sort of joking moment um where he says well what do you think daddy's favorite song is and buck goes i don't know friends in low places (laughs) (laughs) and so they listen to it and christopher gets really huffy with him and goes that's not funny <laughs> it is very funny. <laughs> you um, had to be there, though. You had to, you had to be, be there. there. Yeah. Um, but um, there's a lot of times when he listens to stuff, and so Buck is trying to get him to understand that sometimes people um, listen to music, and it's not music changes for you over time, and it's about sometimes you connect with the, the 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 musicality of something and sometimes you connect with the lyrics of something and sometimes you connect with the memory of what was going on with you um at the time that you heard the song and not about what the song actually is saying uh, it's a, it's about evoking a strong memory and christopher um it, it, he has kind of like a breakthrough in understanding because he remembers that um after his mom left and he'd had one of his surgeries that his dad would spend a lot of time holding him um, and rocking him, always listening to the same song. And he, he was too young. He remembers the song, but he didn't know what it meant because he was like four, right? And four or five years old. And he didn't know what the song meant. And so for Christopher, the song is about his dad loving him. But the song is actually about some lonely dude sitting in the back of a bar watching his ex dance with somebody else. And 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 
and Christopher's like, why do you think he listens to that song all the time, and why does he still listen to it? And and Buck said, well, maybe it's just like, you know, for him, just like it was for you. Um, you know, that it started off that it, he was sad about your mom leaving, and so that's why he was listening to that song. But now he listens to it because he remembers holding you, just like you remember. And so they just sit and listen to it over and over. Because Christopher has a different association with that song than 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 what the than what the words mean. So anyway, I'm kicking my own ass emotionally just with this. S- story. You're kicking my ass too, <laughs> dude. I mean, it's it's been it's. I'm like, why am I doing it? Why am I? Why did I start with the heavily emotionally charged one? And then I remember the plot for the other one, and I go, oh right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in my in my in my in my journey uh, that I've been doing, um, I've I've had to do some replotting for for Warhide, and um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish it and start Windrider during November. Um, so that's kind of upsetting because I wanted to write both of, write both of them during November, but it just might not happen. Um, I have considered moving some of the events. That I had planned for Warhide into Windrider, but it would mean changing those plot points for a different point of view, um, because I'd want I wanted to tell Windrider from the point of view of Ragnarok and Lenore, um, and so some of those events would have been Rizel's events in um, in Warhide, and some and some of them would have been tears. So it's like okay, do I keep these events in this particular space? Do I move them here so I get both stories? But then I eventually came to the conclusion that it would take away from what I want to do with Warhide to do that. Um, and the events that take place in Windrider are so different. Um, because, you know, Warhide is preparing for a dimensional travel. They're going to travel to a new dimension. They're going to they're gonna land on Arda with most of the Horde. Um, the migration will take roughly five years, um, and it's going to end with Windrider at the end of those five years. Um, so the last Windrider takes place in the last month that the last of the Diverger are on Earth. Um, and so moving those events doesn't make sense, and it would take away from the book that Warhide is. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's been a frustrating experience because I plotted one thing, but like a plan, a plot rarely survives engagement intact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The problem is, is that I'm really kind of in love with Tear Warhide. That's the problem. <laughs> well, Tear's very... You ever fall in love? You ever fall in love? <laughs> it happens. Sometimes a character just really kind of gets under your skin and you just, you know, you kind of fall into it and... You just, you got to write it, you got to write it where it goes. And yeah, I think you just got to, you got to do what feels like it's the right thing to do for the story. I mean, because there is like this, there's just, I've, Tyr is not a new character for me. Um, I've included him on a lot of my works. This is the first time he's ever had a POV. Um, well, obviously it started in Fireborn. Um, but there is an element of of Tyr and exploring his very different family circumstances from Rizel's, um, where he, you know he has all of these siblings and he has parents who are um, larger than life, and he he's you know he 
he's adjusting to the, to the to this recognition that he has accepted a role for the horde because he's falling in love. I mean, he's falling in love, and that's the part that matters. But also, he's he's accepted something that's going to alter the path of his life and his career as he knows it, um, and um, it's not what he expected. He expected to fall in love, get married, have some babies, <laughs> sue people who pissed him off. <laughs> that's what he expected. What he got, or what he's about to get, is a courting gesture from the future king of his people, and. A, a lifetime commitment to the formation of a new justice system for the Horde. Um, that's, that's part of this, this magical document that was created 600 years before either one of them were born. <laughs> and so they're both bound up in these contractual obligations of this document that they didn't participate in the creation of, they didn't sign, and they will eventually be magically compelled to do. <laughs> so there's like this fuck you element underneath it all that they're both experiencing but not expressing um because they want each other and there's all these trappings that are coming with it and you have to ask yourself like like if, if you were in his position is it worth it is the scrutiny and the pressure and the work is it worth it to either one of them to fight to have this personal relationship and of course garth books would tell us yes Garth Brooks would tell us yes. The dance would tell us yes. It's 100% worth it. Because, yeah, they're going to have all of this crap. But if they figure out how to police their own boundaries and create time and space for each other, then everything else will fall into place. There's something that's come up in my work before, and I, I see other authors explore it too, is the idea that people have... Um, that if they don't get together, it won't hurt to lose one another or it won't hurt to be apart or whatever. But I think once you love somebody, that goes out the window. That right. being being apart is just being apart. Um, that one of the get... tropes I hate to see in that friends to lovers trope is I never, I didn't, I didn't say anything um, because I don't want to lose you. And I'm like, if they're really your friend, they're going to get past it. If if they don't want you the way that you want them, if you're really friends, you can move past that. I think. I think typically, I think typically, yes. The only time I think that the, that they're, I, I I understand a little bit, and I think the author has to explore it, is um, if there's a worry about homophobia or transphobia mm -hmm. or something along those lines, where the person's like, I don't know, we've never discussed, I don't know how they would feel, or, and sometimes that can be, and it, it's still not necessarily great, great or comfortable to read, is if that, especially if that is turned internalized, um, especially for like somebody like a, maybe an Eddie character who was probably, um, if he's if he is gay or bisexual is probably I don't think it's unrealistic for somebody like Eddie to I don't actually want to read it in depth but I don't think it's unrealistic for Eddie to be dealing with some level of like internalized homophobia yeah um, I believe it, it's believable but I don't want to read it either I just I don't yeah I don't want, I mean I don't like to read self-hatred as a rule yeah, it's one thing for him to have already dealt with it in his mind, like he dealt with it years ago. I can deal with that. But when I, to watch him go through that struggle for 30,000 words on screen, that's just, mm -hmm. it, it's just, I, I get, I under, I, 
I talk to people in real life who are struggling with that. It's just not what I want in my fiction. I don't need to. You know, I fiction for me is escapism, and there's just some real world, real world things. But I do think it, I could see how it would be realistic for him. So if somebody really has that really like baked in fear there they're really worried mm-hmm. about how far are they along on their journey we've never discussed this what if what if they freak out you know even if i don't think that they would what if you know and, and sometimes fears are irrational but i think it has to you know for the most part it has to be um i think my bigger issue with those kinds of stories is if there's zero communication if there is this assumption oh he'll hate me if he finds out that i love him and yeah they're insistent upon it and start to get hostile because based on their assumption and there's still no communication and it is infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, would take a miscommunication just as much as the next person, but don't make it abusive. And that often happens. Yeah. It's like, it's like this abusive tone. Um, I also don't want to see anybody, somebody who has dealing with their of homophobia, abusing everybody around them and getting away with it. Yeah, agreed. Um, the other thing about the whole, um, I mean, the thing about somebody being like one side, a one-sided, one-sided, you know, affection kind of thing. Um, for starters, one-sided relationship is not a relationship. It that drives me nuts. That 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 whole positioning it one-sided you know and then people will tag it as a relationship that is not a relationship tagging quit tagging a pairing when it's one-sided but anyway that's a pet peeve um it's unrequited yeah unrequited you know but um when somebody um it can when somebody when one side is in love and the other side is not and and they have that discussion even if they're the best of friends for sure it can make things awkward for a while and you know the, the friendship has to level set again. But if they, if you're both good, if you're good friends and you're, you know, you, and you're determined and you, and you have good communication, y- you can get past it. It doesn't have. To, it's not a relationship destroyer. But yeah, things will be a little awkward for a while because it's a little. Okay. Yeah. But it does require. But even the awkwardness requires conversation. It requires the okay. This is a little weird. Um, I know it's a little bit weird because, and there's also a little bit of what do you, there's, there's two sides of it. You know, there's the person who is not feeling the effect, the feelings saying, you know, what do you need to, to be okay? Um, do you need time? Because the person who's goes in with these unrequited emotions, they might need to step back from the friendship for a little bit while they get their, their emotional house in order because compartmentalization is a, is a skill. That adults need but to have. But often I see it happening like some kind of nuclear holocaust. <laughs> it destroys all their relationships. They have to leave town and get a new job. <laughs> it's just like, it's, dude. And that speaks to a character who's not very emotionally mature. Um, or a writer who's not very emotionally mature. Yeah, that too. Um and maybe for sometimes people's first big love, I mean, feeling like and you you do your love confession the first time and it, it's not reciprocated and it can feel huge. And, and maybe it is. But, you know, I, I think as you get older and you, you join the army to get away, as you get older, you get perspective. It's like, OK, well, how do we how do we move past this? How do we communicate and move on and. Um, you know, I, 
I speak from experience on this. It is it, it is a little weird when some of these conversations happen, and um, especially when they come out of the blue and you really were clueless. Um, I had a friend once tell me that um, that I, the, the, I I will unfortunately tell you the way she said it to me that somebody she said she says I swear somebody has to like wave their labia in their in your face before you notice they're interested and I was like what <laughs> it's like. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? I, and I was so I was so mystified about what she was talking about. And she was just like, and she just threw up her hands and like walked away. I was like, what? What? And I'm like, like chasing after going, what are you talking about? And she's like, I mean, she, she's like, she could not have possibly been any more obvious. And I was like, well, clearly she could have been more obvious because I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, you know, I can be really oblivious if somebody's not, like, really... But if somebody just, like, flat out comes out and talks to you, I'm like, oh, okay, we could talk about it. And so it's like... I, I, I probably developed too many of my social cues in a dungeon where people just come up and tell you they want you to spank their ass. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably true. This is probably true. Subtle sometimes does not work on me, you know? So somebody flirting with me over lettuce, just sometimes it just blows right by me. But anyway... Um, I mean, if I could give any future partners for Jilly some advice, just ask her out. Just ask, yeah, just, just just ask her out. Just say, "Hey, can I take you to dinner?" Right. Um, to a place you're totally not allergic to. <laughs> <laughs> um, or, we, or somewhere, or somewhere that offers plastic bubbles, whatever. But <laughs> you know, so the the one time this um like signet was was a really significant big deal was when a friend. Had we and I had this discussion. I was baffled. I was baffled, and I talked to one of my best friends about it um, a few days later. And I, I said, "So and so told me that they were in love with me." And they're like, "Yeah, and?" And I was like, "What do you mean, yeah, and?" And it was like, well, "We've all known that forever." <laughs> I was like, "Where was I?" And she's like, "I don't know. Where were you?" <laughs> Sitting there being oblivious is where Jilly was. I was sitting there being oblivious. And and that's the thing is sometimes people are oblivious, okay? I am that person sitting in the room not picking up. And there are people like that they just don't pick up on. I can I could actually dissect somebody else's body language down to, you know, the angle of their shoulders if it's two other people. But when it comes to me and somebody, I'm just like it just it's just does not compute. Um but, you know, I'm usually pretty good with communication. So I was like, you know, this is a good friend of mine. And I was like, okay, so I said, things are awkward right now. I, I understand that you're in a, that this is difficult for you. Um, I want you to have what you need to feel better. But I want you to know that from my perspective, I'm still your friend. I still care about you. So I want you to tell me what you need um, if you... The, whatever distance is happening between us right now is because you need it, not because I need it. So, um, and so we just had that conversation and, you know, it was, I had to drive the blunt communication at that point <laughs> because yeah. I mean, uh, because and it, it was very, it was very difficult, but you know, our friendship did survive and, um, we moved on from that, but it, it was for a while. Things were definitely, it was definitely awkward for a while. So there's, there's no, just everything's exactly the same. I, I do find that um, when I when I do see people writing like, oh, nothing's changed. I told them I loved him. You know, I was in love with him yesterday, and today we're going grocery shopping together, and everything is exactly the same. Mm, yeah, my experience is it may probably not, <laughs> but not be the same. I've had two experiences like that. One worked out 
perfectly well. We're still friends, actually. Um, the other one, not so much. Both dudes. Um, we're Facebook friends because we live in different states now, but we were we were in college together. The first guy, um, I thought he was a very good friend. Um, he thought he was a nice guy. Uh, and he told me to fuck myself when I told him no. Needless to say, we were no longer friends, and from and from my point of view, he was not a nice guy. <laughs> Just to put that out there. And the other guy, um, my senior year, uh, he told me he'd been in love with me since he met me, and we met my freshman year of college. And um, he uh, asked me, um, he offered to move back to my state with me um, and get a job, and um, he said, "I just, I just want you to give me a chance." And uh, y'all, I. I adored that boy, but there was, there was nothing there for me. It, it was really, it really hurt my feelings to tell him no. It hurt his feelings more. I'm not discounting that at all, but, but we're still friends on Facebook. Yeah, because some people, you just care about them so much, you wish you could make romantic feelings come up, but if it's just not there, it's not there. Um, right. So it's just, that's just the way it goes sometimes. It just isn't just isn't happening. But if their response to you is hostile and ugly, then a friendship going forward is impossible. Because uh, yeah, I agree. The, the The implication is is that they were only ever nice to you with the assumption that they were going to get something from you. But then I feel like you didn't know them as well as you thought you did. So yeah, right? and, you, and your friendship and was you... never was never what you thought it was. So I'm just catching up on chat. Next, I'm glad I'm not the only person who struggles with missing cues. Um, one of our baristas, um, I thought for sure, I, I started to go, like get this, it, it, and, you know, if I'm noticing it, it has to be pretty obvious. I thought that I was getting this, like, this inkling that she was flirting with me, but I wasn't 100% sure. Mm-hmm. I wasn't 100% sure. Um, and I, for, for a while, this is, this was, this was like right around the beginning of the pandemic. And I, I wasn't going into Starbucks. I go into Starbucks a lot, like to the point that like I'd walk in the door and like, you know, like half the staff would call me by name you know hey chili i'm like hi <laughs> you know they all know my name because i order on the app so i'm they're picking up I my order. coffee picking up my order um and i thought you know i i'm just so bad about being sure about the flirting thing um and um but it was starting to like penetrate my brain i'm like i'm, I'm trying to like be more aware of other people right so i'm like trying to be pay, pay more attention to other people's interaction with me directly like what is this like what were they trying to 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 tell me? You know, just not be completely oblivious and off in my own head. And um, I thought, is this flirting? I'm not 100 percent sure. Huh. I like my no, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And then um, I was um, I went in and and I picked up an order, and um, she'd handed it to me. I walked in and they said, and she's the one who handed it to me. The barista handed me my order in a bag and the cup, and I um. I got back out in the car and uh, um, I looked at another friend of mine. I said, I think the barista's flirting with me. And she said, what was your clue? I turned the bag around and she had like written and done art all over the bag. Hi, Julian. There's like little hearts and swirlies and butterflies and stuff on it. (laughs) And her phone number because that's a prime opportunity to pass the phone number. (laughs) I'm like, hmm. I was like, I've never gotten art on my, she says, hmm, yeah, I think so. I was like, I think I finally caught a clue. 
I said, I think I, and to, and to, the, and to the friend who made the labia comment before, I actually sent her a photo of it and said, I think I finally caught a clue. <laughs> she wrote back, said she was very proud of me. <laughs> the hearts gave it away. She feels like, she feels like I've grown as a person. But now the, the question it becomes is, did, did you go back for more coffee or did you run away? No, I've been, <laughs> I have been back. But... <laughs> well, okay, so here's the thing. I did tell because the, the the butter the, the but there's the, there's a couple the, the art and then the, like the the butterflies and stuff I and she my friend that I sent the picture to she she immediately caught on to the 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 issue and she said how old is she and I said way too young and she, oh, she and she said oh. does she know how old you are and I said I don't think so um so I made a point. Um, like I said, this was a couple years ago of, of discussing my age, <laughs> um, with the cashier one day <laughs> to see if that had any impact on the barista. And she looked, she looked startled. And, uh, and, uh, I, yeah, because she's probably hitting a woman, uh, hitting a woman as old as her mother. Oh, but yeah, <laughs> I, I would, I would guess early twenties. Yeah, way too young, way yeah, too young, yeah, way you too young. Yeah, you could have birthed that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she's less. She's less. I, I would say for, I. I would easily guess have guessed less than half my age at that time. Um, and uh, I was just. I just can't. I mean, I have. I, what, I, other people do what they want to do, but it's just I. I, I have. I have my. I have my boundaries. She um, doesn't have time for baby lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, <coughs> see, I, I just made a comment or something to the cashier about, you know, pushing 50 and the, you know, age is creeping up on me or something like that. And, and it was just like, um, you know, it, it, it's, I appreciate, I do appreciate that she thought I was significantly <laughs> younger than I am, but I'm still not, even if, even if I was like the, the, the age she thought I was, it still would be. I mean, you're lucky she's no. not aggressive like I was when I was that age. I'd have been like, really? You don't look a day over 30. Did you want my number? Because <laughs> I was that girl. Yeah. If I set my eyes on somebody, I was having it. <laughs> right. Um, Ed, I would love to discuss menopause, except menopause isn't happening for me. I, I just, I keep waiting for I it, am, you know? I I want the pause. Bring on the pause. Fucking pause. Give me the pause. I want pause. I want. Maybe I could discuss that about how eager I am for the pause. I'm eager for the pause in menopause because it's just I'm really sick of everything else. I, I'm done. I'm a hundred percent done. I, I, I could go in there. I'm railing about. I've got nearly forty years of menstruation under my belt, and I never wanted to have kids. And I just feel like I have paid my dues. So I want. I, have, I want the I have pause. Been bleeding for thirty-eight years. Yeah, yeah. I'm done. I got my period around ten, ten, eleven, somewhere in there, and I'll be fifty in two months. I was months. twelve. I'll be fifty in two months. So that's nearly forty years of menstruation. Ridiculous. That's pointless. Ridiculous. It's utterly think, pointless. You would think they would be like, "Hey, this bitch ain't gonna let us do our job, so let's let's retire." <laughs> but no, no. That's not how it's working. My asshole aunt, Holy Roller, speaking of, 
pointed out to me that she had her period well into her 60s. Yeah, my sister brought that up, that women in our family tend to have their period later. Long, well, long. that's not happening to me. And she said it might. I said, I got a doctor who says otherwise. <laughs> I can get stuff removed. <laughs> my mother will um, get, my mother will get all sanctimonious about, oh, the period, it's not so bad, the period. Well, we get to bitch about period. She'd be like, oh, I'm like, excuse you. Aren't you the one who got her period late in life? Like 16 or 17, 15, 16, something like that. She goes, yeah, 16. And I'm like, uh-huh. And didn't you like have like three kids? Like practically in a row, and then have a total hysterectomy, and she said, "Yeah." I said, "What the fuck are you talking about? What have you had like six periods so in your what, life?" So what? She she had probably like what five years of a period. Yeah, about that. About that. Mm, five it, or six it, years. Counts her pregnancy. And she did. And, and yeah, she, my mom was about the same. I'm we, like, woman, you need to shut up because you got no, you got no clue. Her kids, her kids were close enough together that even even the biggest gap was between my brother and sister, which was a little which was a little over two years between the two of them. Her periods had barely restarted. My Her period never restarted between my brother and I. We were so close together. Wow. Wow. She needs to She needs to not have an opinion about your period. <laughs> Just put out there. You. I reacted at her at one point. I said, you got less than a decade a of menstruation. I said, I have fought four decades. I got four times your, at least four times your experience with this. And I don't want to hear about it. And also, in her day, you didn't talk about your period. My sister and I talk very openly about our period, right? About what's going on and about menstrual health and da-da-da-da. And my period mom's like, cups. Yeah. And she's just like, my mom's just like, oh, she's just like freaks out every time. She's like runs and hides. And I'm like, oh, but you get over it. <laughs> my mom doesn't run and hide, but she doesn't really know a lot about it. Because like she, she didn't have one, much of one either because um, she had a hysterectomy at 22. Four, twenty-four. She was twenty-four when she had her hysterectomy, um, and um, I had uh, I was experimenting with period cups. It didn't work out. I don't want to talk about it. It was carnage. Anyway, I had two of them, and I had boiled them, as one does, and I had put them on a paper towel to dry, on my kitchen counter. What? It's my kitchen. They were boiled. Anyways, they're on my counter. <laughs> my mom. Who oddly never has good experiences in my kitchen says, what the fuck is this? And so I told her. And she said, you had these things in your vagina. And now they're on your kitchen counter. I said, first of all, this is my kitchen counter. And if you want to be explicit about it, my vagina has been on this counter. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't boiled. So there. <laughs> <laughs> and she said... I got, I got the full name. She put out the full name. Maiden name and married name on the end. She just went all out on it. And she said, I said, look, you're not even here invited. You just showed up. <laughs> you can go home. Fortunately, she's never been here on the day that I washed the dildos in the dishwasher. So, you know. And boiling a menstrual cup leaves something a lot cleaner than putting something in the dishwasher. Just putting that out. Not that, right. not that I've ever doubted... Not that I've ever doubted the cleanliness of something that comes out of the, you know, because I mean, I wash my sex toys before they get put in the dishwasher. The dishwasher is kind of yeah, the final step, so, uh, right? But you know, I use I use the I use the menstrual discs. I wasn't didn't do off the cup, but the disc and I, the disc and I are friends, um, very good friends. I'm afraid of the disc because the one time I used a diaphragm, I had a hard time getting it out, and my partner at the time had to help. 
I'm afraid me and the disc would not get along. Well, the disc I use has like a little, um, a little place to hook your finger into it. A little place, to, so it's like a, a little indentation. You just kind of slide your index, the tip of your finger, whatever tip of whatever. It doesn't have to be your index finger. You can stick your pinky up there for all I care. But you just put the tip of your finger at that little indent, and you just kind of hook your finger into that and pull. Well, that sounds really messy, though. Not really. Actually, I. Um, I mean, I'm not any more so than I mean the, this particular this particular one um, because I did I did manage to try using. Um... Wait, we're still recording the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, we should probably end the podcast before we. <laughs> For those of you who like to see how that ended, or hear how that was going to end, I apologize. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and. Um, that and in if you're upset about my divorce from beta, um, I don't care. Uh, say good night, Julie. Take it up with her lawyer. Good night, everyone. 